This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Welcome back, everybody, to Wrestling Omakase. It is episode number 175, and this week I am very pleased to be joined by a returning guest, but also your debut here on the free feed, because your previous episode was a Patreon exclusive, uh, Mr. Todd Martin. Hi, Todd. Hey, John. It's good to be back. Good to be back. Or good to have you back. Uh, how's your weekend going, I guess? It's doing uh, It's doing well. A, uh, a nice, low-key weekend as we get ready for some... Uh... Some more uh, busy ones coming up. I guess we had, it hasn't been that low key. I mean, there was a big boxing event yesterday, and uh, and the G one concluding. But I guess compared to some some weekends, it's felt uh, not too bad. I found out uh, earlier today that they moved Hell in a Cell for some reason, which I guess is the kind of thing that affects your life, but doesn't really affect mine anymore. But it's just like, yeah, I don't know. Why, why did they move Hell in a Cell, Todd? Do you know? I'm not sure. I mean, that, that, I think that was a while back. Like there was oh. some sort of scheduling thing. Um, I, I think I think they've had it in place for a little bit. But yeah, actually, when you asked me about this, I was thinking that this was the same day as Hell in a Cell. So I was thinking we were going to record, and I was going to watch Hell in a Cell and record on that. So um, yeah, I guess that's that's one reason to feel it a little a little easier. Yeah, uh, but obviously, you know, not a ton going on in general. I guess with the the ongoing pandemic and everything, but. Everybody's trying to hang in there. Are you excited for the U.S. election, Todd? I am excited for the U.S. election. <laughs> I am too because I want to. I want the polls to be correct. Obviously, so if they are. It'll be a very good night. So, okay, and I'm, I'm just a general democracy lover. What's to what's to what's to say? What 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 reason isn't there to be excited about the upcoming election? It's, uh, it's something. If you look at like the amount of early voting that's already gone on, too, it's like. Wow, really, it's just an election season now, not just election day. But yeah, the the turnout is is very high, and I think from the standpoint of what you're talking about, a lot of people hoping the polls aren't going to be wrong. They're sort of, I think, a lot of people like are think, crossing their fingers, um, and those people I think are are perhaps not wanting to hear for like superstition reasons, like how the correlation that usually goes along with high interest elections in this country. Yeah. Uh, but I, I have not voted yet. I'm going to vote probably, I think, next Tuesday is what I, the day I circled for early voting. There's there's an early vote place. It's like only like a 10-minute walk for me, so I'll probably just go walk over there and do it. Because the, the main, the like the normal um, election day 
uh, precinct is like a minute walk from my house. So it's, I, I really have never done the early voting before, but now I'm thinking, I'm like, oh, I don't really, even if it's a minute from my house, but to stand in a three hour line, it's still not good. So I should just walk the 10 minutes and do the early voting. Yeah, I would think you'd probably be able to find one that's uh, a time that's pretty easy if it's so easy to just walk over there. Because if it's too busy, you could just go back another time. That's true. Yeah. So I might do, I'll try next Tuesday during the daytime since uh, I'm still a work from home person. But yeah. What do you do? You, do you do the mail in voting or the in person voting? Yeah, I sent in my ballot a little while back. Okay. Um, it's in Maryland, so we'll see how it turns out. A lot of lot of uncertainty here. <laughs> we're both. I know we're both in states where it's like, yeah, uh, if we don't vote, I mean, I don't, I don't know if we're gonna have a major effect. But uh, please vote, everybody, if you're in a swing state, especially. Uh, you know, and you know, I, I don't have to. I, I don't have to act like I'm nonpartisan. Don't vote for Joe Biden. <laughs> I'm not gonna be like these fucking these commercials that are like, oh, go out there and vote. Well, you know they want to say like, please vote against Donald Trump, but they can't say that, so they're just like, you know, the commercial I'm talking about, right? Like, oh, the funniest one. I don't know if you watched it. Was the uh, the HBO Max um, thing with the West Wing special? They did like uh, they reunited the West Wing cast, and they did the thing where exactly what you're talking about, where like they gave all of these PSAs for like voting. And then they said like everything that made it clear for exactly who they wanted you to, without saying that explicitly. Yeah. It was really funny, you know, like they, it was like addressing like all of like the, it was like a sort of like a scrolling through of um, repudiation of various things that have been said about, you know, like about uh, that, that Trump has said about voting. So it was, you know, it was, it was the <laughs> most partisan nonpartisan voting um pro-voting uh thing special i think i've ever seen uh, they should have like even gone further and be like all right don't vote for anybody who is orange uh <laughs> don't vote for the freaking cheeto in the white house but yeah i don't know they uh that's kind of those commercials are kind of funny but yeah please please go out and vote unless you're the type of person that would vote for donald trump then please fucking stay home and just that's forget. a very partisan commentary you've made, John. Hopefully you're not, you're not running off people here. Yeah, well. I mean, there was a guest, uh, well, actually, compared to a few weeks ago, it really, it really can't, I can't run the Trump people off any more than I already am, so we can just leave it at that. Because there was a, I had a guest on, like, right after the the Trump COVID diagnosis, and uh, he was, he, he was even much less diplomatic than I am being right now about the uh, president's health. Let's just say so. Uh, if the if the uh, if the Trump voters won't run off by that, they're never going to be run off. I think so. Although I don't really know how much is there a big crossover between Omakase listeners and Trump voters. I kind of doubt it, but yeah, that? I would tend to think not. <laughs> I mean, it's it's hard to say for sure, but it feels like you know it feels like a subject matter that would probably lean one way politically. Yeah, I can't really say. I mean, I, I'm on, you know, I'm obviously on Japanese wrestling Twitter a lot, and I I don't know if I ever come across that many Republicans. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's a very, it's also a very international community in general. So, you know, but anyway, uh, so the thing we're actually here to talk about, not American politics, is the G1 Climax 30, which wrapped up this past weekend uh, with the final two shows on Saturday and Sunday. Now, if you're looking for our review of the A Block final, I hosted that with another guest, uh, the <laughs> the infamous Puffin Brain Andrew from uh, the Super Jcast Discord. So he and I had a great time, 
and we did the A Block review show on the Patreon. Uh, the vast majority of G1 coverage on the Patreon, so if you're not a subscriber and you want to go back to listen to any of that, it is at patreon.com slash wrestlingomikaze. Uh, it's only $5 to sign up, and you get all of our past audio, uh, along with anything else we're going to be doing in the future. I should say that also includes Todd's appearance on the five matches episode that we did, which was a lot of fun. Uh, I, the only one I remember that... Oh, I remember we did Necro Butcher and Super Dragon, and then the, you also picked that All Japan tag, and the Fit Finley and uh, William Regal match. I don't remember what I picked. <laughs> I remember it. We, uh, we definitely talked about uh, Takeyama and Kobashi. Right. See, now, and... it's, it's much easier for me to remember the guest picks, because I pick a million matches for that series, so, like, it's harder for me to remember which matches I picked on each episode. But, yeah, Kobashi Takeyama... And what was the other one? Was it? Well, did you already name? Did you name the 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 tag with the the yeah. font? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I was trying to think of my second pick on that episode. I remember Kobashi. I think it was an OG one. Maybe Tanahashi and Shibata. Oh yeah, yeah, Shibata. yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. Yeah. So that was a lot of fun. So definitely, you can hear that if you subscribe to the Patreon. And I should mention too, if you're if you want coverage of upcoming tournaments, we'll be doing daily coverage of the. World Tag League and Busted Super Junior Combo next month, and the DO and DDT. So that'll be coming up on the Omakase Patreon as well. So again, the tournaments they don't end, John. They just keep coming. <laughs> I honestly like after this G one ended today. Like after I finished the final, I was just kind of sitting there, like, all right, what now? Because <laughs> like, because <laughs> like they these three tournaments, the G one, the Noah N one Victory, and the Champion Carnival, they basically like dominated my life for a month plus b- between. You know, watching them all, recording on every single show. I mean, that takes up basically all of my free time. So it's like, okay, what do I do with myself now? But you know, the tournaments will resume, like you said. So it's not going to be that long. Uh, it's never, it's never too late to to get into professional football, John. <laughs> I was actually thinking, like, hey, maybe I actually have time to study my Japanese again, which I haven't done in like a month and a half. So you know. Uh, but anyway, so the G1 Climax wrapped up on Saturday with the, or wrapped up on Sunday, but the first show we're going to talk about is on Saturday, the B-Block Finals, uh, October 17th in Rio Goku. This was a, I guess, or, yeah, October 17th. This is a controversial show, I think is a good way to put it. There was some stuff here that I really liked, and it seemed like nobody else on Earth really liked, so I'll be interested to hear if Todd is with the consensus or with me here. I guess we'll find out. Uh, but the opener was Gabriel Kidd defeating Yuya Uemura in 8-16 with a double arm suplex, the final one of these uh, Young Line openers. Now, Todd, were you watching the Young Line openers on each show, or were you one of the people that was skipping them? I was, for the most part, skipping them. I think I saw three or four of them, and there was really no correlation with like any particular reason. I just, like... You know what it, you know what it was. Now that I think about it, I watched. I definitely watched it for most of the English speaking shows that I watched, but I didn't watch a lot of English speaking shows um, because I was typically watching them pretty early. So yeah. yeah, I didn't see that many, and I do not think I saw this one in spite of my general rule. I actually that's a good that's a question I should have asked you. I assume you watched these two shows in English then. Um, yes, I did. All right, so that's a good contrast because I watched them in Japanese. So, um, but yeah, so this was a. Uh, you know, this match, I thought this was easily the weakest of the uh, three young line pairings. You know, the Uemura kid pairing. I, you know, I've talked about this on past episodes. They they just didn't have a lot of juice compared to the other two young line pairings where, like, 
you know, Uemura and Suji are like the dojo, the Noge Dojo rivals. And, you know, Suji and Kid, they developed this like little feud that they, you know, built up in promos and stuff. So Uemura and Kid, on the other hand, just like, uh, you know, just didn't have that kind of juice. But, you know, this match is fine. Uh, I gave it like, the, it ended up with a good little match here. Three stars or so, you know, a fun little, uh, you know, especially like kids like technical wrestling, just like transitioning from one submission hold to another very smoothly in this match. So that was probably the highlight to me. Did you watch it or no? No, no, I didn't. Oh, you didn't. I will not troll you by comparing this to the B-Block in general. <laughs> that would be a rude comment to say. I, I will say, I, I noticed earlier in the... Uh, in the in the uh, the tournament, that you were taking a little bit of an early victory lap on the B block, like after a few shows, because you you were of course back in the B block from the beginning, because a number of your favorites on there. And I thought at the very beginning, a couple of the early B block shows were you know were some of the best B block shows, and and I thought you took a, a victory lap a little bit early because I thought that it was the A block B block differences um, were a little bit stronger after you started uh, proclaiming the uh, the uh, the strength of of the B block. Yeah, the middle the middle portion was definitely the weakest portion for the B blog. I will say that. I don't think I there's still I think a, a smaller gap for me than a lot of other people because um, I just didn't enjoy a lot of the A block stuff that a lot of other people enjoyed. But uh, for sure, the B block peaked early, and I would say well, a couple a couple of the later B block shows were good. This show, you know, was was like kind of eh, but like the middle the middle portion definitely did get a little. Uh, it was a valley, let's say. There are peaks and valleys in the B-block. <laughs> it's the nicest way I can say it. Uh, the second match was Yoshihashi defeating Toriano in 6-10 with the Kinkoji. Uh, Yoshihashi goes to 2-7, and seven, and Iano drops to 3-6. and six. Um, This was fine. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm not... You know, people who listen know I'm not a Yano hater at all. I generally enjoy his matches. And, you know, if there's a little... If there's a spot that makes me laugh... And a fun little finish that's generally a good Yano match to me. And this one had, you know, a spot that made me laugh, which was Yoshihashi uh, producing his own roll of tape and, like, taping Yano's wrist to his staff and, like, behind the railing so Yano couldn't get it through. Uh, and then basically ends up just deciding to stick his entire body through the railing with the staff and then run through the fence opening and back to the ring, which I thought was funny. Uh, and the, the finish I liked, too, because Yoshihashi, like, blocked this low blow from Yano and like rolled him up into a cradle while holding onto the arm. And that ended up being the pin. So I don't know that, that to me, it's like inventive finish uh, and the, the staff spot three stars. It was fine. Definitely not the worst Yano mash, not close to the, my favorite Yano match from this tournament, but it was what it was. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, Yano does a lot of the same spots and I'm generally not like a big fan of Yano. I, I mean, maybe it was like just me, but like in my personal enjoyment, there was like, wider variations than you'd expect with the Yano matches in this tournament. And there were a number of Yano matches where I thought it was like they were quite amusing to me on the Yano scale. And then there were a couple of them where it was like, oh God, like this, like, how did I ever like Toriyano? And then there's some that are like in the middle where it's like, well, this is, you know, some Yano spots. This for me was sort of in the middle where like it didn't really jump out at me, but it didn't strike me as like one of the negative ones either. It was sort of right in the middle of what you expect for a Toriyano match. Yeah, I think we pretty much agree there. Uh, and we'll get to the wrap-up at the end. It was a kind of... We'll get to Yoshihashi's tournament at the end when we wrap everybody up, but, you know, kind of a maybe a downer way for Yoshi's tournament to end because I think he was so good throughout this tournament. But, uh, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a Yano match. You can't really 
Unless you're Zack Sabre Jr., apparently, because I loved that match. But uh, Hey, at least Yoshi got a win. So. That is true. Yeah. Match number three, Juice Robinson defeats Hiroki Goto in 12.07 with the Pulp Friction. Uh, Juice goes up to 4 and 5, and he drops Goto down to 4 and 5. Uh, the first thing I noticed about this match was there was a Japanese man in the audience cosplaying Juice's current look. Uh, and they showed him when Juice was coming out. And that is some dedication right there because now they both look ridiculous. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they go to and Juice like they charge right, right at each other at the opening bell. You know, traded elbows and just a lot of great back and forth action. You know, your classic New Japan like clean fight. Your if you cl- kind of close your eyes and imagine it, you can probably imagine it. You know, both guys refuse to back down. There was like a fun Larry exchange that ended with Goto hitting the Usigaroshi. Um, and there were some really good flash pit near falls down the stretch as well. This really cool like counter cradle that Goto pulled out of nowhere I really liked. Uh, but Juice finally hits the left hand of God, then a second one, and then the pulp friction for the clean win. I thought this was a lot of fun. I, you know, it didn't quite get to like four star level for me, but it was like a three and three quarters for me. Probably Juice's second best match of the tournament behind only the Naito one. Uh, so he did close out strong, at least, I guess. But, you know, uh, I, I enjoyed this. I thought it was pretty good. Uh, it sounds like you might have been a little bit higher than on it than I was. I, I thought that, you know, I thought the juice throughout the tournament and, and Goto, for that matter, too, they were sort of, you know, generally where you would expect them to be, which is having pretty good matches. Neither of them, as I recall, had anything that I thought was a real standout match, but they also didn't have a lot of stinkers either. They were just sort of, consistent and giving you a certain quality and this sort of fit in the uh into that and and you know it fits too with the you know the point totals you know they're winning some they're losing some they're right in the middle in terms of quality right in the middle in terms of uh in terms of uh records yeah uh you know juice maybe again save for the wrap-up but i thought maybe his point was a little disappointing to me but on the other hand i'm not really surprised that he struggled a little bit when he maybe could not have the same crowd connection in a COVID environment because he's definitely somebody that, you know, feeds off that crowd energy. Uh, match number four, Hiroshi Tanahashi defeating Zack Sabre Jr. in 1201. Uh, Tana moves up to four and five, and he drops Zack down to five and four. Um, I really enjoyed this one as well. It, I, I, you know, I, I, these two are the kind of wrestlers that, like, uh, you know, I know some people are very sick of their matches, but like I could watch them wrestle pretty much any day of the week. Uh, you know, they started out with some really nice grappling. Uh, Zach almost turned it into like a quick pinfall. Um, and then both guys were just trading a million holds and counters uh, before we get to the awesome finish, which was like Tanahashi hitting the high fly flow crossbody off the top rope on Zach. Zach tried to roll through it into an arm bar and almost did it, but Tanahashi rolls him up off that armbar attempt into a cradle for the pen. Uh, I, I love that. And they even kept, like, grappling with each other after the bell, after Tanahashi refused to let go of the cradle, which is just really cool because you never see wrestlers do that. You see them brawl after the bell, but you never see wrestlers just, like, continuing to wrestle after the bell like that, which I think made a lot of sense to me. But, again, just below the four-star level for me, again, about a three-and-three-quarter star match. Uh, they've had better matches in this one, but I thought this was a lot of fun, and I think if you enjoy... You know, I mean, if you if you enjoy their past matches, you'll enjoy this one. Yeah, I, I agree. I, th- I thought that this was as well um, not one of their well, not one of their best, but they have good chemistry together. And I in particular like the finish. I just thought that like in another setting, Tana would be kind of a dick holding the guy down after he'd already beaten them. 
but you know, Zack Saber was such a jerk in general that it <laughs> felt like an apropos thing to do. And of course, Zack Saber responded by you know throwing one of his temper tantrums and just being infuriated the fact he was held on even longer, which uh, added to the uh, added to the finish. So I thought it was a you know a nice little sort of giving a you know giving the guy a dose of his own medicine and uh, Saber playing it up afterwards. So I thought that was uh, clever. Yeah, Zach is again like you know he, he there's a lot of stuff I don't think he gets enough credit for and just like his his like demeanor and his ability to ability to like sell uh you know not just sell in the context of a wrestling match but like sell a storyline or sell a defeat is just like second to none I think. But Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean he he really particularly the well no actually both. Yeah, he's great at gloating in a really obnoxious way and he's great at, at pouting about a loss in a really obnoxious way. So yeah, it's uh, it's good stuff. Uh, the semi-main event, and this is definitely one I disagree with a lot of people on, so it be interesting to see here. Uh, Kenta defeating Tetsuya Naito in 2106 with an inside cradle. Uh, Kenta moves up to 5-4, and four, and Naito drops down to 6-3. and three. Uh, Naito, of course, would have stayed alive. He had beaten Kenta here, so not a big surprise that he lost this and made the main event a winner-take-all. Uh I, I really like this a lot. I mean, there was there was a portion early on where I think you could say um, they maybe were running through their usual offense in a not super exciting way. Um, you could say maybe, I mean, it was good stuff, but maybe it was like lacking intensity for a possible block deciding match. I think that's a fair critique. But at the same token, I don't think it was bad. And then after the 15 minute mark, like everything after that, I thought was just like flat out awesome. Uh, you know, Kenta hits this like really cool knee to the face on a kneeling Naito after he like put him down with a spinning back kick. Naito just went flying on it. Uh, Naito came back with a nice reverse Rana uh, when Kenta tried to follow up with the go to sleep. Uh, started throwing those wrist, wrist clutch elbows he's been doing, and Kenta really hit the mat hard in the last one. And then Naito hit this top rope Rana, Gloria for a near fall. Uh, Kenta came back with his hanging DT in the ropes. Some really hard-looking slaps to the face. Uh, Naito gets a great counter Destino in midair to get out of go to sleep, and that gets a two count. Um, and then Kenta scores with like a series of chops. Uh, Naito comes back with the Enzigiri and gets Valentia. He goes for the wind-up Destino, but Kenta counters uh, with unfortunately a kind of sloppy-looking cradle. It's not even clear that Naito's shoulders are fully down. That's unfortunately the pen. Uh, so the ending, like, I, I took a little bit off of the ending because it did feel out of nowhere, not really in a good way, just when the match had, like, really hit another level. Uh, and, like, the cradle itself wasn't executed well either. But before that, I was really, really enjoying it, especially after it got super intense. So I went, like, four stars flat, took off, like, a quarter star for the ending. Not as good as their match from February at New Beginning, but, you know, close enough for me, actually. And uh, didn't have that long Kenta stall period at the, at the beginning that I think a lot of people hated, but... You know, I, checking other people's reviews, I seem to be higher uh, than most people on this one, which is not surprising for me with a Naito match. But I guess I'll get your thoughts now. What did you think of this one? Yeah, I thought it was pretty good. I, I didn't, uh, I didn't think it was a, a great match by any means, but I, I thought it, uh, it was, it was pretty good overall, and it built, I thought, well with the uh, the caveat that you mentioned in terms of, uh, in terms of the finish. I mean, if people didn't like it as much, I mean, I guess. With Naito in this tournament, we've seen a lot of sort of longer matches. I think perhaps people are, you know, ready for some Naito matches that go a little bit uh, shorter. And I think probably uh, as well, there's um, 
there's some uh, hesitancy in terms of the choices of who they're go- who beat Naito in the uh, in the tournament, uh, with Evil and and uh, and Kenta being the one, since those are both feuds that we already saw this year. And I think uh, perhaps people aren't as enthusiastic about those being the uh, the final. Whether we get both of them or or, or one of them before uh, before the Tokyo Dome, necessarily the the enthusiasm for those relative to a fresher matchup of Naito wrestling, uh, sort of the, the cheating bullet club guys. So yeah, uh, overall though, I thought it was, uh, that was pretty good. Uh, yeah. I mean, the only thing I would say with that, I guess is it seems like they do that every year though. Like Okada Sonata last year when Okada was champion getting, you know, and Sonata was the one who pinned him. I mean, they end up having like their fourth match of the year for the title. So, I mean, I get it. I just think that's more of a, I guess it's more of a general new Japan booking critique, you know? But they, they don't. They don't did they do to... that the year before? Like, I remember the Okada Sonata one jumped out at Wii as well. Now that you mention it, so the year before it would have been Omega Ishii, which was, yeah, I guess, yeah. I mean, that was like their that was like their fourth match of the year, I think, because Omega Ishii would have wrestled uh, earlier in 2018 after the Dome, I think, or maybe that was 2017. I'm thinking of maybe that was only their second match of the year. But it, I mean, they definitely was a rematch from the G1. Uh, and then the three-way at King of Four Wrestling, which I hated. Some people liked it, but, uh, you know, that was with Cody and Coda. So. Not enough, because they never did it again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I mean, uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I think it's, like, 20, 2017, they did Okada Evil. But, yeah, I just feel like the, the fall title challenge is never, like, the most exciting title challenge, you know? It's always pretty much like, well, the guy, we know the champion's going to retain. Here's something to fill the time. But uh, yeah, I guess I guess the 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 issue one stood out as better because that was the him getting the breakthrough win on Omega felt more exciting just because like Omega had beaten him a bunch of times and Ishii generally fell short in those sorts of matches. Yeah. So that felt a little bit a little bit more. And there was you know having Cody involved in there added a you know freshness to the uh, to the Omega one and the the Evil one was one of Evil's biggest matches at that point. So all those felt well. As you say, they were ones where you they didn't have a lot about of drama as to who was going to win. It felt like there's a little bit more juice to them, whereas the the Okada Sonata and the uh, and what I presume is going to be Evil and and uh, and Naito, although we'll probably get um, you know this one as well. The the um, the Kenta and, and Naito match at some point here too. Both feel like reruns where the thing that happened the first time is is going to happen the second time as well. So. Yeah, um, I mean, I guess evil one in the middle, but you know, the ending was was Naito. Yeah, I mean, I'm as a Naito fan, even I'm I, I can't tell you I'm that excited for another Naito evil match. Uh, Naito Kenta, though, I'm I'm fine with seeing that again. But I like. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I agree. I thought it was pretty good yeah. uh, as well at the beginning of the year show. Yeah, and it got a lot of it got a lot of heat for uh, for uh, more than you would expect, given that they just beaten Kenta at the. Uh, at the dome, and I don't think a lot of people thought he'd win, but he was just so great at being a uh, a jerk that you wanted to see him get his anyway. Yeah, they they sold out Osaka Joe Hall for New Beginning, which was kind of actually kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the main event, this again, I know I'm going to be higher on the most people. Uh, Sonata defeating Evil in 27:01 with the O'Connor Bridge and moves Sonata up to six and three, drops Evil to six and three, and Sonata wins the tiebreaker. And wins the block since he had beaten both Naito and Evil. Um, so, okay, this match. The people who really hate this match, uh, and I'll be interested to hear. If, actually, why don't you just tell me first of all, because I am very curious. What did you think of this match, Todd? Did you like it? Did you hate it? 
I did not I did not hate it, but I definitely wasn't particularly high on it. So the thing the thing of it is is like the the story of the match was again the idea of the babyface overcoming the interference and the cheating and all the obstacles from the heel. And that was the same story they've done so many times during this tournament, particularly in key matches. Like it's one thing when it's like Tamatanga on the lower card, but like given that Evil and Jay White both built so many of their matches around that throughout the tournament and Kent had some of that as well, you know, and, and those were like key matches throughout. Like I think a lot of people are probably tired of, you know, big matches continually having all this interference. And that had been pretty much the story the night before with Ishii and, uh, and Jay White. So to go back to it again here in the B block, I think is why people will probably be like, oh God, here we go again with the same stuff. And I will I can, say, I will say really quickly, the, that's probably why Sonata won this and not Evil because then you, at least you didn't do that in the final. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that I think that's uh, I think that's true. But you know, it's it's always better to sort of break those things up. So I think if people might have been more receptive if it had been you know on the first night and the third night rather than like the first and the second. So so sort of going back to the uh, to the same thing. But yeah, I mean, I thought I thought that um, that Sonata, I am I am not as high on Sonata as some seem to be, in that. I just he doesn't it doesn't feel to me like he connects on the level for someone that you would have in like the top of the top matches. Um, but I thought that in this match, like he was showing more fire than he often does, like sort of rallying the crowd. I thought he did better in that regard than he often does. And I thought it was from from someone that's sort of a skeptic on the idea of elevating Sonata's main events. Um, I thought he did better than than, than expected in that regard. So. I thought it. I thought it seemed like it worked for the live crowd. What they were trying to do, but you know, I think like a lot of people, I, I'm not terribly keen on you know more you know more ref distractions and and involvements from uh, from Togo or Ghetto depending on the match and you know and and uh, and weapons and whatnot. See, I do think it's going to end with one of them. So I do think Jay White's going to turn face, but I guess we'll see. Like, I was I was going to bring that up later in the in the show. I yeah. was my. I was thinking, am I crazy for thinking this? No. Uh, but yeah, we can we can talk about that. Yeah, but as, as far as as far as this match is not that. First of all, I'm glad you at least said it worked for the live crowd because there was like there was a subset of the discourse after this match where people seemed to be denying that Sonata was over here or that the people were into it, and it's just like like at that point, I don't know if you're watching it on mute or what. But they were pretty clearly going crazy at the finish and pretty clearly like super into Sonata uh, winning this match. Um, you know, so I don't I mean, if people want to pretend that they weren't, I guess that's their prerogative. But I, I mean, I, it, to me, that's not like there's there's opinion, there's fact, right? Like opinion is I don't like Sonata. I didn't like this match. I don't like interference in New Japan. That stuff's all, you know, great if that's how you feel. Fact, on the other hand, is were the, was the live crowd into it or not? And they clearly were into it. So, I mean, that's just, you know, you, you can have your own opinions, you can have your own facts. Uh, not not you, Todd, but the people <laughs> the people out there. I, I, do, I do like to have my own facts. I mean, it's fun. <laughs> um, but yeah, as far as this match itself, uh, you know, I did I did enjoy this quite a lot. I mean, like, there was, I just thought, like, the, the stuff in between the the interference stuff, which, the interference stuff, I will freely admit, does not bother me as much quite as much as it seems to bother some people. It can bother me in certain matches, but, like, you know, here especially, it didn't really bother me that much. Um, 
you know, I thought other than like a kind of, there was a kind of dull evil heat period or evil control period early on. So that that's, you know, a negative, but like this match didn't really feel 27 minutes to me. Uh, so that I think was a positive, And that again was a positive for the final two, as far as not feeling like it's length. Um, you know, there were some really fun sequences, like, uh, you know, this really fun, like running sequence that ended with like Sonata, uh, ducking the diagonal lariat from evil. And hitting this really nice springboard drop kick. I made a note here to make fun of Evil for having like a five percent success rate with that diagonal lariat throughout this tournament, but then he hit it on Naito the next night. So I guess he showed me. Uh, but yeah, they you know they just went back and forth on the finisher attempts. Um, you know they in like an entertaining entertaining way. Uh, there was a, at one point as a small child like shouted Sonata Coon. Uh, which you could hear, you know, very clearly because of the lack of uh, anything but clapping at that point, which I just thought was kind of adorable. So I had to make a note of it. Would uh, have a very different connotation <laughs> if someone yelled at this country. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was a, uh, you know, I just the the whole finishing sequence I really liked. You know, Sonata like you know tries to cradle Evil out of nowhere. Uh, just as Red Shoes had gotten back in the room from being bumped, Evil came back with this big Larry and like signaled it was over. Uh, one for the evil again, the STO, uh, but Sonata reversed into the skull end, uh, like backed into the ropes where Togo took out the Garot Ryer, uh, and Hiromu super kicked him off the apron, and Sonata sent sent evil into Togo and then got his O'Connor roll on evil for the pin. Uh, I love the finish here. I thought it rolled. I I like that you know they they built up to this thing where the this moment where the the uh, Dick Togo bullshit finally came back to bite them in the ass. Uh, Hiromu helped out his, you know, Pareja. Um, and, like, Sonata's always, like, been a guy who who has pushed, you know, in interviews and stuff that, you know, I believe one of the lines he had last year was, like, you know, there's more ways to win a pro wrestling match than just dropping somebody on their head, which is a good little line also because, obviously, his leader in LIJ very obviously wins his wrestling matches by dropping people on their heads. Uh you know, he was talking about his cradle here. And the fact, a lot of people complain that there are so many cradle finishes on this show. And that I understand is a critique, but it doesn't make sense as a critique for this match because the finish was perfect and it set up an amazing near fall in the final the, the, the next night because there is no way that reaction is for the O'Connor roll near fall in the final is anywhere near as intense as it was if he hadn't just won the B-block final the night before. So... Uh, but oh, yeah. they also, I would say they also set it up very well, like the the sequence right before it. Um, I thought led into it really well too. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but yeah, so I get a lot, I get why a lot of people probably hate this match, uh, but I liked it a lot. It was a four star match for me. Uh, you know, the only critiques being, like I said, maybe the a, a little bit slow and dull, like evil control period early on. But you know, I thought they worked as well and as hard as they have all tournament because I I didn't think either guy had a great tournament especially sonata for like you know he's somebody that really turned it on for me in the last two shows with the the tanahashi and the you know and the evil match here but i didn't have him at four stars or above before that tanahashi match so you know he definitely you know kind of went went through the tournament very low key uh part of that i think also was you know where he was slotted i mean he he did work a lot of uh he worked a lot of like first and second matches if you look back at it but like you know, I thought he, he he at least turned it on down the stretch here. So, uh, but yeah, like I said, the people who say Sonata isn't over really got to explain the reaction when he was announced as block winner, and like the fans were like so ready to do that uh, that 
that cell phone thing he does that like uh he he didn't even have to tell them and he was like he seemed he actually seemed kind of shocked that they were like uh all taking out their phones before he could even tell them to do it so I in mean, fairness there were some soft moments for sonata during this tournament i mean he had some pretty cold matches um no 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 i, I, points I definitely and- agree the final, I thought, was on the low end. And granted, I mean, they're not cheering, but like I thought, like in the early going, it felt like pretty, pretty close to dead during you know the early going of that Ibushi match. So there were some there were some mixed signals with uh, with Sonata. That's fair. I I just think he I think he's very over with the with a certain subset of the Japanese fans, and uh, you know I think it's hard. It, it maybe it's hard to judge. Like you said, because of the clap crowds, but I don't know. I think he, the reaction where they all took their phones out immediately, I thought was telling. So it's either they were very into Sonata or they're big Bray Wyatt fans. Those are pretty much the only two options. So oh, this was no, this was this was a good night for him. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it definitely was. Uh, the final B block standings I mentioned earlier: Naito, Evil, and Sonata all tied at six and three, and Sonata won the block based on that. Uh, Zach and Kenta finished at five and four. Oh, and Evil, I guess, would be your official runner-up because he beat Naito. So there you go. Uh, Zach and Kenta finished at five and four, uh, and then you had a bunch of four and five people: Tanahashi, Juice, Goto, uh, and then you had Toriano at three and six, and Yoshihashi at two and seven. So there's your final standings. Uh, nothing that stands out to me as a huge surprise. Maybe Tanahashi having a losing record for the second straight year. Maybe, but. I, I'm honestly not even that surprised by that at this point. I don't know about if are you did, did you feel that surprising? No, I didn't think that was particularly surprising. I mean, I, I I'd like to see otherwise. I mean, I think when you've got a block like this that isn't that you know that strong in terms of people that need to be protected, I, I would like to see Tanahashi do better. But as you mentioned, that's you know that's been a, a trend for a little bit now. His only loss that really kind of stunned me was the Goto one, I guess. Because then, if if you reverse that one, he'd be at five and four, and would have had a winning record. But like the other people, he lost to. I mean, Yano, anybody could lose to. Naito, he was always going to lose to. Sonata, Evil. So I mean, all those made sense. But yeah, the Goto one was kind of surprising. I don't know. I don't, I'm not actually kind of. I'm not really entirely sure why they did that because it's not like Goto needed that win and needed to be five and four. So I don't know. Maybe they're going to set something up down the line with the two of them. Yeah, I, I'm not sure either. Uh, the finals, night 18 at Ryugoku earlier today, uh, or not night, eight, night, night 19, October 18th. I don't know, it gets confusing with these dates and days. Uh, so we can go quickly through the undercard here because, you know, there's a lot of tag matches before we get to the final. So the opener was an eight-man tag team match with the team of Suzuki-Goon, Taichi, Zack Sabre Jr., El Desperado, and Doki, pinning Hiroki Goto, Tomohiro Ishii, Yoshihashi, and Yano. Uh, Doki pinned Yoshihashi in 10:34. First of all, the first thing I want to say about these tag matches in general: after a month and a half, almost or whatever it was, of no New Japan undercard tags, these undercard tags were actually like a lot of fun to me. I don't know if you felt the same way, but I was like, "Wow, these are enjoyable." (laughs) Yeah, I I was. Well, I typically watch the, the the undercard matches on the G1 final just because that's all they there there are. But like I. You know, I, I, I watched all, all the way through these, and I, I skip a lot of those tag team matches. So, it you know, it felt it felt fresher because they haven't been doing very many of them, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I am definitely the kind of person... They've been doing any of them. Sorry, yeah. I am definitely the kind of person that watches, like, you know, almost every match of every show. 
So I don't know. Maybe I just kind of was like, ah, the other card tags are back. <laughs> they're back. <laughs> it was kind of funny. But yeah, I mean, I feel like they're very underrated matches in general because it's like the the work is rarely bad, but like it's very hard to you know sit there and say that they were great either because they're they're also very samey. So it's very they're very difficult to judge on that uh, on that kind of scale. But yeah, I mean, they're usually like you know usually especially the lower ranked guys will work really hard in them. Uh, and I thought this one was a great example. I mean, like, very high-energy stuff. Everybody was going hard to me. And, you know, Desperado looked very fired up to be back in there. Uh, you know. It was also kind of funny when Zach uh, retied a turnbuckle pad that Yano had started untying. That was definitely the comedy spot of the, ma- comedy spot of the match. And then Taichi and Zach hit the Zach Mephisto, the double-team Black Mephisto on Yoshihashi. And Taichi then throws Doki on top to take the pin. Uh, that was Doki's first pinfall victory the entire year. Uh, shout out to Chris Samsa, Sport of Pro Wrestling, who pointed that out in the Voice of Wrestling Slack. And I don't know if you saw the post-match interviews or not, but, like, Doki coming back, like, with his uh, lead pipe in his hand, just saying, I did it, and, like, the other Suzuki Goon members clapping for him. It was, like, strangely heartwarming. It was like, <laughs> these guys just all kind of like each other. It was, uh, they're heartwarming heels. But, yeah. Uh, I like this, and I guess we're getting a Taichi Zach Doki uh, six man title challenge. Uh, probably, I would assume, is one of the uh, Cork and Hall mains this Friday or November 1st or November 2nd. That sounds like a blast to me. I'm, I'm down. But yeah, this was fun. I went like three and a half on it. Real fun opener. Yeah, I felt bad for poor Yoshi after uh, <laughs> after having his you know his strong tournament, and then here he comes in and has to get pinned by Doki. It was not the, uh, the greatest jumping off point, but. Yeah, clearly just there to set up the uh, the number six fan title match. Yeah, and then I assume Yoshi will get his pin back on Doki, and then maybe we'll get Ishii and Yoshi against Taichi and Zack for the heavyweight tag titles. Because uh, Yoshi actually did mention after he beat Yano uh, on the second night, the the B block final, that he is not satisfied with one title; he wants two. And it's like, he buddy, it's more gold. It took you eight years to win a title, and now you're like, I want to be a double champion. It's like, okay, maybe pace yourself a little bit, buddy. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I was thinking maybe you'll go after Naito. You know? <laughs> there you go. The year of Yoshihachi. Uh, match number two was a straight up two person or four person tag. Uh, it was Shingo Takagi and Hiromu Takahashi defeating Minoru Suzuki and Yoshinobu Kanemaru. Uh, Hiromu pinning Kanemaru with 11.54 with the time bomb. Uh, speaking of people, fired up to be back. Hiromu, like, ran all around the ring. Like, just was so excited to be back, finally. Uh, but the match did start, like, a long heat segment on him uh, before Hiromu came back and pinned Kanemaru with the time bomb. So that obviously will set up another junior tag title challenge for Hiromu and Bushi at Power Struggle. Uh, should be Power Struggle. I, I like how it's shaping up after this show. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people are not that excited for Naito Evil again, and I get it. But like, you know, they, they've they're teasing a lot of cool little cool little matches here, and this is definitely one I'm excited for with Hiromu and Bushi against Despi and Kanemaru, uh, and Shingo and Suzuki continue brawling at ringside. So we're getting that again for the Never Title, I'm sure. Uh, but yeah, I thought there was like a three and a quarter star fun little match. Not quite as good as the opener, but a good time. Yeah, another of your uh, your your set up New Japan tag matches where they're building up the two matches at the same time. Shingo and Suzuki stood out more in in my mind just because it's so fun watching them go at it. But yeah, just uh, putting in the work for those and uh, Sh- Suzuki in particular is well suited for 
these sorts of tag matches where you can just go in there and act like a maniac and fight someone for a few minutes. You're like, oh, I want to see more of that. And uh, this fit into that mold. Yeah. Sometimes the Suzuki, like the Suzuki build can sometimes be better than the actual matches. Because, like, not that he has bad matches a lot, but I remember the the build for Suzuki Naito uh, back in 2019 was, like, a lot of fun. Like, they just kept going at each other on all these tags, like, you know, both, like, really getting under each other's skin. And the matchup build up, too, was really not that good. So, you know, it can definitely... Yeah, this does, this does not fit into the mold of... Um... The, the the finale wasn't good, but like when uh, when after Moxley had uh, had won his match at the beginning of the year, and then Suzuki came on the entrance, that was one of the highlights of the year. For, oh, feels I, like three years ago, um, because I, I wasn't anticipating that match, and then Suzuki like, oh, they're gonna do it, and then they had the long ramp, and so you could just wait, watch him come down, like, oh, they're gonna fight, they're gonna fight, they're gonna fight, and then they fought. It was cool. I definitely agree. I, I mentioned that earlier too. I think a few weeks ago it was like one of my highlights of the year. That was that was such a cool angle, and like yeah. you could you could tell that Moxley just really wanted to do it. So like you know it always helps when one of the performers is that excited. But yeah, they were like, and Suzuki. I don't know. Suzuki seemed to be like just very amused with the entire thing. So you know, I thought that that, that definitely stood out, and the crowd was like so happy to see him because he wasn't even on the on the main card. So you know, they were like stunned that they got to see his entrance. Uh, yeah. match number three Tanahashi, Juice Robinson Jeff Cobb and Master Watto defeating the Bullet Club team Jay White, Kenta, Taiji Ishimori and Gato uh, Tanahashi submits Gato in 9-12 with a Texas Cloverleaf uh, Watto looked a little bigger when he came out I noticed maybe put a little bit of muscle a little less awkward too so those are both probably good signs because uh, you know his his debut was I would say Great meme material, but widely banned, <laughs> let's say. Uh, but he did spend most of his time getting beaten up here. Uh, the the Bay faces all got to run wild for a while. Pretty entertaining stuff. I mean, like, we got some dives from Juice and White. Or Juice and Watto, I'm sorry. And Cobb press slamming people onto each other. And then Tanahashi finishes Gato off for the win. Uh, yet another fun tag here. Three and a quarter. Uh, and afterwards, Tanahashi... Seems to indicate he wants a shot at Kenta's U.S. title challenger briefcase, um, which he did make even more clear in the backstage promo. I will say, uh, going after, like, Tanahashi going after the U.S. title would seem like a step down, but Tanahashi going after this weird broken red briefcase seems like <laughs> a way bigger step down. So, uh, it's just aesthetics, I guess, matter. But, yeah, I mean, that looks like another power struggle match. I like their G1 match a lot, so that'll be, that could be fun. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe, I mean, people, I think I've kind of been wondering what the hell Tanahashi's going to do for the Tokyo Dome if now that, uh, you know, code is going to be in the main event picture and maybe that, maybe he beats Kenta and maybe they're trying to get Moxley in the country for Tanahashi Moxley. I could say it, I guess. Yeah, it's two stars. It would be a, it would be a fun match. It's sort of a, a little bit of a weird dynamic in terms of, uh, in terms of the personalities, but. You want to, if you're going to bring back Moxley, you want him in there with, uh, you know, some key stars to make it worth your while. Yeah. Uh, after this match, we got the announcement that Wrestle Kingdom 15, uh, well, first of all, indeed happened because they hadn't, they had never said that until now. Uh, but it will be two days again, January 4th and 5th. I wasn't shocked at all that, uh, you know, they, they're doing two days because they have the 20,000 cap. Probably, probably, it looks like a 20,000 cap. And they probably want to get, you know, 40,000 total. So I get it. But like, I was a little surprised they did one four and one five again instead of one three and one four, 
because you know it's Monday and Tuesday, whereas one three and one four would have been Sunday and Monday. But maybe Sunday just isn't that big of a difference over there. I don't know. It's still a work day the next day, I guess. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm not, I'm not sure. Maybe they just think like the new tradition would be one four and one five. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe they're just gonna. That's gonna be annual now. Uh, did you did you see the so the, the the catchphrase is go to New Japan? Did you see uh, like why that like why that's kind of funny? No. no. Okay, so Japan ran and the, the people. I, I will say like as soon as they announced this, the Japanese people I follow on Twitter were like all tweeting something like about how funny this was. So Japan earlier this year and like I would say June or July uh, ran a. Um, I guess you would call it like a national campaign or like a, uh, you know, a national advertising campaign slash, uh, like I think even like they put some funding into it. Like, you know, you could get vouchers and stuff. It was basically a domestic travel campaign to try to make up for the lack of international tourists since, you know, they closed the borders. So it was called go to travel. That was the name of the travel campaign. Now this was, this was an official Japanese government program. It was widely panned. Like, the people really, like, they, because they couldn't decide whether or not Tokyo would be included or not, because at that point, cases were, like, way, way higher in Tokyo than the rest of the country, and they finally decided Tokyo wouldn't be included, and they went back on that, went back and forth, and people were like, why are you running a travel, a a program, you know, uh, promoting travel during a pandemic at all? So, it was widely panned and mocked on Twitter, uh, you know, on Japanese Twitter. So... It's basically a playoff of that. It's like instead of go to travel, it's go to New Japan. So people people were very amused by that on on my Twitter timeline. So uh, I definitely wanted to mention that one. But yeah, I, I I can't really tell if it's meant to be an an homage or a, a like a jokey shot or what. But either way, it was very amusing to people. Well, without the foreigners, they're going to need people to go to New Japan. <laughs> That's true. So there you go. Go to New Japan. Uh, match number four was uh, the new empire i guess is I, i'm not sure if that's their official name or not it's a kind of stupid name i have to say that that's what they're really going with they seem to be going with it and like very generic very stupid uh will osprey and the great okan defeating kazuchika okada and show in 1236 uh osprey submitting show um <laughs> i don't know what to make of this one because first of all great okan i was pretty surprised that he was still wearing his, uh, I don't know how to pronounce this, Jingashi? Jingishi? It's basically a Chinese folklore about reanimated corpses who get around by hopping. Like, that's really what, that's what this gimmick is based on. And I was pretty shocked they were still doing that gimmick. Like, I thought they were, when he came out on Friday, that they were going to go for, like, a Bond henchman kind of vibe, you know, with the teeth. Like, I thought that was supposed to be Jaws, basically. And he was just going to be, like, Osprey's, like, well-dressed uh, you know, henchmen. Instead, they're really still leaning into this, like, uh, the same gimmick he had on Excursion, which they don't really do that, ever. Like, you have a guy use the same gimmick on Excursion and, you know, when he comes back. So that was pretty surprising to begin with. Uh, you know, the... <laughs> I don't know the nice way to say this. The gimmick is a little offensive. I mean, he, he they have, like, you have a Japanese man portraying this weird Chinese folklore thing, he screams a lot because, you know, you could argue that's because the Japanese, uh, like the, like a Japanese stereotype of Chinese people is that they scream a lot. Uh, so that's kind of what's behind his screaming, I think. 
Uh, it's difficult for me to say this as a white person, I guess, but I'm trying to be as diplomatic as possible. But yes, like people have told me that the the thing here is like the ja- like Japanese people, you know, they view themselves as very quiet and you know polite, but they view Chinese people as very loud, and it's kind of you know kind of racist, and or you know I don't know maybe racist is the wrong word like uh, you know nationalist I guess I don't know. Uh, Stereotypical, but- yeah, because I mean there is there is sort of in general some of the customs in China is to be more demonstrative. I remember that because I, I lived in, in China when I was a kid. And like, for example, like, I don't know if this is still the case now, but like for one of the customs at the time was like, if you had a good meal, was to, to belch to indicate that you liked the, the, the meal. So there was sort of a, uh, you know, sort of a demonstrative flavor to um, some of the customs. Again, I'm not sure if that's changed over time. Yeah. So, I mean, that makes so I mean, yeah, it's just basically... Uh, that could be like the kind of thing the stereotype is based on. So yeah, the gimmick not great, and especially like with Osprey, like there's, there's this weird vibe to it. Like the Empire is like, is he supposed to be his like, you know, like uh, very stereotypical like, uh, you know, lieutenant? I, I don't know. There's a it, it's the not- way they were explaining it on commentary was that like Osprey is British and they had the British Empire and. Um, Okan is a Mongol, so that they have the Mongol Empire, and so they're like uniting the Mongol Empire and the <laughs> British Empire to form this empire. Um, I, I'm with you. It's, uh, it's again, he's not. He's not Mongol either. I mean, he's he's a. As far as I know, he's a Japanese man. I mean, if I'm wrong um, on this, I would. I love think. To... I think the storyline. I think he's. I think the storyline is supposed to be that he's like okay. Mongol spirit. But yeah, he is also supposed to be like that. I mean, that that, that Chinese folklore though, because you can see. The hot, like he he does stagger out kind of like a zombie. So and the old thing, I think he's supposed to be Irish as well. So it's, <laughs> you know, all sorts of cultures being blended. Yeah, um, Osprey Bima was wearing like the brightest green pants you've ever seen. A very weird choice for a new heel, and they still had the Osprey music, the same Osprey, which is not good heel music. I mean, I really thought they'd give him a new theme. I mean, remember when Evil turned? For, Evil did not even have Babyface sounding music already, and they had a new even more heelish theme song ready for him the next night after he turned. But Osprey, they just leave with, uh, you know, the same fucking like, upbeat song. It was very bizarre. So I don't know if this was like a last minute decision or what, but the, the entire presentation here of the Empire was very bizarre. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they switched the music to the next tour. Yeah. Uh, oh, the next tour kicks off on Friday, which is, you know, I guess it's enough time to make a new song. But yeah, they had the evil one ready. Like, you know, he turns on Naito and joins Bullet Club at the end of New Japan Cup. And the next night, Domini comes out with brand new music. So I clearly had that one ready, I guess. Uh, but yeah, this match, I mean, Okan, he's one of these guys that I think is going to need time to, um, you know, make his moveset and make his, like, you know, maybe like, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word, <laughs> like work the kinks out, you know, his gimmick and his moveset and make it work in New Japan. Because he did look a little over the top to me in a few times, not in a great way. Uh, his best moment was probably when he, like, hung Okada up in a tree of woe and, like, repeatedly stomped him and then did the screaming and, like, hit this nasty-looking, like, sliding one-legged dropkick to the face. That looked really cool. Uh, but other than that, you know, there were definitely some moments where I was like, you know, you're going to have to work the kinks out of this, buddy. Uh but yeah, I mean, I'm sure he'll get there. He has like some. He, he's a guy that I think has potential, especially like you know he's a bigger dude. He has this legitimate amateur background. Uh, you know, I, ho- I hopefully he figures it out. But you know, uh, he's gonna gonna take some time, I think. 
but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I thought the match was fine. Uh, you know, Osprey taps Show out with this like figure four thing. He he puts Show in the hold. Okada tries to save, but gets cut off by Okan, who gives him this claw slam again. And then Osprey like elevates himself and makes Show tap. Um, I thought it was the weakest thing on the show so far, uh, mostly because of Okan, who needs to like I said work the kicks out. But still, a perfectly fine three star match. Yeah, I mean, one thing I, it was uh, it was there's some good value in Vegas because the odds makers had uh, show getting beaten is only a minus 32,000 favor. So <laughs> you could have made some money there um, if you put it in um, on that one. And I agree with you. I thought the match was on the weaker side. And I, I thought, you know, this was, uh, you know, the first uh, first major match for Ocon since he came back. And I, I didn't think it was terribly promising. I don't think he did a, uh, he looked particularly good or particularly well-defined in terms of what he's uh, he's trying to be. Granted, it's right at the beginning. I'm sure there were uh, there were nerves, and there'll be time for him to uh, establish himself. But as a uh, a first, you know, first signal of what we're going to get here, I didn't think that this was a uh, particularly encouraging sign, unfortunately. And I assume he's going right into a singles match with Okada. It seems like it, because uh, in the backstage promo, Osprey straight up straight up said that uh, if Okada wants him, he has to go through Okan first. So I assume they're going to do that. Maybe a power struggle. And then build Okada Osprey at the dome, but uh, you know, I just uh, we'll see. I guess what he can do with Okada in a singles match. It'll be interesting. Uh, yeah, that's that's that that is interesting, and how they book it as well. I mean, obviously Okada would win that one, but how much would they uh, would they give this guy? Yeah, uh, the semi-main event: the King of Darkness, Evil, and Yujiro Takahashi. Uh, I don't know why they put Kick of Darkness on his, uh, in the result page, but I, there you go. Uh, they defeated Tetsuya Naito and Bushi. Uh, That's evil. The, the, the King of the Darkness Evil and the Tokyo Pimp Future. <laughs> That's true. I can keep going. The Jet Black Death Max, uh, Bushi, uh, Owen Goldbernable, Tetsuya Naito. Anyway, Evil pins Bushi, or submits Bushi, and fourteen fourteen with the Scorpion Deathlock. Um, this was fine. Again, not, not up to the level of the earlier tags either uh i was excited because at the start of it i thought we were gonna get the team no limit showdown of naito and yujiro and they have this weird chemistry together when they have worked together in the past but uh this of course turned out to be a trick by the dastardly bullet club so i got worked uh because evil immediately attacked naito from behind and then tied himself in to take advantage so you know there was like some bland crowd brawling uh but then once naito got the tag in for bushi uh, you know, I thought he and Evil actually had a fun little exchange to build up their probable title match of Power Struggle. And here's where Evil got his diagonal lariat and uh, proved me wrong after I said on the previous night he never hits it. And Naito went flying for it, so it was a good, definitely a good little spot. Uh, and Evil ends up submitting Bushi with the Scorpion Deathlock. Um, you know, like I said, slow at the start, entertaining by the end. I would say three stars in the whole thing. Yeah, another one where they're just sort of setting future stuff up with this one clearly being the uh, the evil Naito issue. And uh, yeah, other than that, not a ton to say about it. Uh, afterwards, evil won't let go of Bushi. Naito comes in and kicks him. The two just like confront each other again, which you'd think Naito would know by now means Dick Togo's going to come up from behind the choke wire, but he doesn't apparently, and that's what happened. And then evil gave him the STO. Uh, the Japanese announcers were screaming, like, I think something like, like, this is justice. Like, very, like, because that's what <laughs> Evil said. So, like, the announcer was outraged. But I don't know what they were doing on the English commentary, but. 
Nothing. Yeah, I mean, they, 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 this didn't particularly stand out one way or another in terms of the English. Uh, yeah, the Japanese, the, English the Japanese announcers were very angry, so it's definitely <laughs> something I noticed. Uh, Evil posed with the two titles on top of Naito, uh, in case anyone doubts that we're getting that match again at Power Struggle. So I'm sure the internet especially is thrilled at that, because if the Western, pure, Western New Japan fans love one thing this year, it is definitely Naito and Evil matches, so... <laughs> very like you know what are you gonna do uh the main event kota ibushi defeating sonata and 35 12 with the kamigoe to win the g1 climax for the second year in a row he is now the third person to ever do that along with tenzan and masahiro chono and the first person to go to three straight finals so um chono did come out here uh speaking of him and we unfortunately got overdubbing for his theme song. His theme song is so fucking great. So I was, you know, what are you gonna do? It, get, it has to get overdubbed, I think. But it's a, it's a great theme song. But yeah, he's won five G ones total. Uh, it's definitely a lot of G ones. And he, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I, I was also sad because this is the first time I've seen Chono. I thought Chono looks old. I, I never recall thinking that before. Did um, he? So. He looked. He did look older than he did three years ago, even. When he came out, yeah, because yeah, I just I just watched that to do a, a a like a retro watch on the Voice of Wrestling Patreon. Uh, I watched the Naito Omega Final from 2017, and he he looked a lot less old three years ago for sure. So I guess it comes for us all. Yep. <laughs> uh, he joined the announced team for the main event as well. His his promo they gave beforehand, he basically just said like, you know, the whole world struggling through this pandemic. He thanked New Japan for showing us a way forward. Uh, I will say New Japan's definitely been better at running wrestling shows during this than like the collective, for instance, but they, they have a, they have a massive advantage, I guess, being in Japan and not America. So, uh, he also threw in a fair amount of profanity, apparently. He, 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 yeah, he threw, he, he was just cursed up a storm. It's true. Uh, the camera like dramatically showed that Coda's left thigh was all taped up as he came out, uh, still selling the effects of that like brutal, leg kick filled match with Taichi from Friday. Uh, so here's this match is very, I don't know. I said on Twitter, it's hard for me to have any hot takes about it because I really, really liked it. Like I thought it was a lot of fun, especially by the end of it. And there were a lot of things about it that I enjoyed a ton. Um, you know, the biggest thing to me is this was the longest G1 final ever at 35 minutes, which I couldn't believe when I heard that because like it did not in any way feel it did not feel that long. I mean, it just didn't. It, it just, did to me. Oh, it did. Okay. Well, well, to me, it did not feel. It did not feel that long at all to me. Uh, so that was one of the strafes to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, there were. There's just a lot of stuff in this match I really liked. I thought they worked really well together. I thought, you know, especially after we got past the early portion, that you know they, Coda Coda Bushi just loves to do you know slow mat work and stuff like that in the early portion of the match and that's just you know either people like that or they don't um i mean people really were certainly willing to overlook it in that okada match uh, at the tokyo dome and you know i gave that four and a quarter because i thought the first like 15 minutes were just too dull to go any higher but people definitely were willing to overlook it there after uh you know what the first 15 minutes were like um but i thought after those first that same thing here happened to me like after the first 15 minutes i thought the match became pretty outstanding the the only problems I have with it that keep me from going even higher were, first of all, the leg work. I mean, you have this leg bandaged up, and the guy did work on it for a little bit, and Coda did, like, 
just kind of blow it off and like you know he didn't really sell it between he he still he sold that was hurt a little bit between moves for a while but like all the moves were pretty pretty much executed as perfectly as ever so you know i mean you could argue sonata didn't work on it for that long but it did have a pre-existing injury and why bother doing the big like my leg is wrapped up thing if you're not gonna you know actually like make it a big part of the match uh, and the other big problem was, like, there were just a couple awkward spots, like the the phantom drop kick where, like, Sonata, like, Ibushi clearly thought Sonata was going to do a leapfrog, and Sonata was doing a drop kick, so Sonata just drop kicked the air, and Kota just, like, stood out of the ring. Like, that was the big one. And there was, like, another um, awkward spot. I don't know what it was now at the top of my head, and I can't really find it scrolling through my notes. But, yeah. Um, but, like, it... Uh, so those are the, the clear negatives to me but the positives like the everything after the 15 mark, mark I thought was pretty spectacular um, it led up to some really amazing near falls I mean that O'Connor roll near fall was possibly the best near fall of the entire year like when Sonata kept blocking the Kamigoe, um and just like to, to get like a O'Connor roll of all things that over to the point where this incredibly close near fall you could literally see people jumping out of their seats in the background and like you know people are reacting when they're not supposed to react so you know that was i thought the best near fall the entire year um you know like the, the i just thought they had a lot of great back and forth action you know i took a lot of notes but they would it would go take a long time to read through them all um but yeah i don't know i just i really enjoyed the match a ton um if, the only other complaint i could have maybe is the the finish was a, maybe a little anticlimactic with the you know, the two Kamigoes, and that was just it. But, like, you know, I guess then I got to, kick, got to kick out of the first one. It would have felt really anticlimactic if that first one had been the pin to me. But, uh, you know, that was the second. He, he did kick out of that one, and then Cody hit the second one for the pin. Uh, I went four and a quarter. I really liked it. I definitely see where people are coming from, calling it the weakest G1 final in a long time. I mean, um, I don't think it compares. I'm trying to think. Last year, I mean, Ibushi White was obviously better. I I really didn't like Omega Ibushi that much in 2018. I thought that match was, like, pretty disappointing, but maybe it could have just been all the hype, too. But, like, I don't know. I might put this above Omega Ibushi. It'd be close. Uh, but then, obviously, at, at, once you get past that, it doesn't stand up to, like, you know, 2017, Naito Omega is incredible. You know, 2016, Goto Omega is really good. 2015, Nakamura Tanahashi is my match of the year. You know, so on and on. So, like, you know, this probably is the worst one since uh, 2012. Okada Anderson probably was close. Uh, but, yeah, I don't know. But it, it was still, you know, a really good match. It's just the the standard of G1 finals is very high. So, Yeah, I'm with you on the on the strengths and weaknesses of the match. I thought that once they, uh, they got into the ending sequence... I thought it might have been closer to like 20 or 25 minutes in than 15 minutes in, but um, <clears throat> at the point that they got to uh, you know to that to that se- to, to sequence to the so they got to the finish, I thought there were all sorts of great near falls, um, twists and turns. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates. It's all just a shot in the dark until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy Slab Packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. 
I was able to open an Arena Club slab pack, and and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous brown bag of cards, and yeah, you can open it, and look, it's going to be junk. You're, you, you know what I mean? Like, you know what you're probably going to get in those. Maybe you find that fun, and sometimes I do. Sometimes I like just opening up cards and saying, ah, hey, look at some random cards or whatever. But if you're really in this game to to find value and find particular cards, it sucks to have to buy these mystery packs, and it ends up being, you know, almost nothing, you know, nothing of value. Not with Arena Club. You can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading, so you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good, and Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. And you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying... Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off again that's arena club.com slash vow net arena club.com slash vow net for 10 percent off your first purchase on arena club and we thank them for sponsoring the voices of wrestling podcast network i thought that part of it was was really good stuff um but i also thought that the the beginning of the match was was quite slow and uh didn't seem to uh, really go very, you know, go go to accomplish very much in, in the process. So those are the, the strengths and the weaknesses. One other thing as well that um, I, I wasn't a fan of on the, on the English feed was they were really emphasizing this story that, like, Kota Ibushi is trying to become God. And they were, you know, talking about this over and over again. Like, I'm not a religious person, so I won't speak to, like, the, the blasphemy part of it. But, like, it's kind of hard to relate to the guy who, like, is, like, <laughs> wants to be god like it's just it you know it's a very sort of arrogant goal it's an anime supervillain goal i mean people are making fun of that on twitter when he said that it's like you sound like an anime villain sir like yeah (laughs) so uh, yeah so given that i like you know kota ibushi and i don't think you're supposed to like be like taken aback and put off by the whole thing it was like a weird dimension to (laughs) emphasize on the on the commentary and and clearly it wasn't just commentary that's what He's doing in general, but yeah, I didn't think that was terribly productive either. (laughs) I will say, so I've, and maybe you you have thoughts on this. I find it interesting that people are zeroing in on this match as like having the dull first 15 to 20 and then really, really picking up what that to me is kind of the house style. I don't know. Like I, like maybe I, I do like both guys. So I'm willing to admit that like, maybe that's part of the reason why I feel this way, but like, I feel like that is a critique you could level at all sorts of New Japan matches that, like, I don't and I hear. Have. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm the, that's fair. I guess I'm asking you 
why you think maybe that's hitting more on... Uh, there's a lot of people making that critique today who do not make that critique usually. So I guess I'm wondering what, if you have any thoughts on why that might be. I mean, maybe people are just aren't as into Sonata as some of the, uh, you know, some of the other wrestlers. And so, like, the, the slow process is something they're less willing to uh, overlook than when it's, you know, an Okada match. I totally agree. But, I think that's exactly what it is. So. Okay. Yeah, but I mean, I thought the same thing about, you know, I mean, like, you know, hopefully I'm not, like, offending anyone here, but, like, like, like there was so much putting over of that, you know, that two of three falls match with Okada and Omega. And I liked, I liked the first Okada-Omega match so much better because it felt like they just got to the point. The whole thing was just, like, this really fun sprint, whereas, like, the match where they went, like, 65, 70 minutes, it felt like a lot of the early stuff was really slow and sort of, like, just, you know, sort of waiting to get to the good stuff. And I, I yeah, 100%, I I 100% agree with that critique of that match, especially since... I don't remember who spends a long time working on whose leg, but like somebody does a lot of leg work in that Okada Omega two out three falls match, and it goes nowhere. I mean, they spend way longer on that leg work than they do in this match, and it plays. I don't think it plays into any of the three falls. So yeah, I totally agree with that one. The one four match uh, is their best match by a mile. So okay, yeah, yeah totally yeah. with you on that one. Yeah, um, I mean the the sixty minute draw. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, the six-minute draw really suffers from the fact that they do the the Cody Elite Drama Hour in the middle of it to me. Like, when I, re- I had to rewatch that on a Five Matches episode this year, and I was like, wow, this this is one of these things where it's like, you take that out of the original context, and it's even worse than it was <laughs> at the time. Because it's like, you know how this all plays out, and you know that really this, especially the, the Cody Elite thing, like, it really didn't go anywhere. They just kind of... They went to that. They built to that match and then made up immediately after. It just, I don't know. It really, uh, it really hurts that match watching it back. So yeah, the one. The... I appreciate your, your your phrasing of it, by the way. Too, I, <laughs> I had to rewatch. Hopefully, the person who you did that is <laughs> not, not listening. No, 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 no. Because no. he picked that match to troll me, and he knows that he did that. So if he is listening, if Liam okay. is listening, he knows how much I did not want to. Because he picked that as the pole match, and it won the pole. So I, and I, I made it clear throughout. The poll process, the polling process that I did not want to win. So, uh, what a what a bunch of jerks! <laughs> uh, but yeah, so there you go. Now, here's a theory I want to share because Coda won this G1. Obviously, he's going to the Tokyo Dome. People used to say that Tetsuya Naito was the going to end up being the Masahiro Chono of this generation. You know, he wins two G1s. He's going to have G1 success all the time. He's never going to win the title. Obviously, that went away because he's now on his third title reign, uh, you know, and he he won the big one at the Tokyo Dome. What if Kota Ibushi ends up being the Chono of this generation, where he has the G one success? He sets he he sets a new record. He's the first guy to ever go to three straight finals. He's the first guy to win two straight G one since Tenzan. What if that's Kota Ibushi's lot in life, and he's going to be the one who? gets all the G1 success, but never gets the IWGP Heavyweight title success. I'm not saying I think that's definitely going to happen, but I want to throw it out there so I can look like, a ge- look like a genius if he loses at Wrestle Kingdom 15. So That's interesting. Yeah, I haven't thought of that. Um, I mean, I think I think, it, I think it's possible. The reason I would tend to think it, it isn't is that the reason to have Chono in that position was a very logical one, which is that Chono was one of the top stars, but he wasn't a guy that really needed to be the champion. Um, you know, he both in terms of like the way that he worked and in terms of his persona, he was better off like sort of having 
you know, different feuds in the middle, but not being the, the championship guy. Whereas Obushi, I think, is well suited to be a champion. He hasn't been to this point um, because, you know, he was a freelancer for a while and he lost his first title shot, but they often do that storytelling. I think that Ibushi holding the IWGP title for a substantial run at some point would be good for business, good for the company, and would make a lot of sense. So I think the reasons why you would have put Chono in that position don't necessarily apply to Ibushi, and I'm thinking it's more of a straightforward New Japan story where he comes up the first time, he doesn't get it done, uh, and so he needs to you know, work his way back up and accomplish it the second time. That's my thinking. So I guess we'll see. Uh, it's interesting to note that Ibushi in his post-match promo only mentions from going from G1 winner to IWGP heavyweight champion. Does not mention the Intercontinental at all. So we'll see what happens there. I mean, uh, we could be looking at a scenario where like Naito has to like gets to def- or has to. It's like, I mean, he's been asking for it forever, but maybe he has to defend the IC title in the main event of one dome and the heavyweight in the main event of the other. I don't know. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But uh, Jay White confronts Ibushi backstage. Uh, Ibushi is. I don't know if you saw this. He's really funny during the segment. He like slams the Zima down in front of him, like, very angrily. Uh, but, yeah, he's a, just a very, very funny segment. People didn't, haven't seen it. Uh, and it's Coda's first uh, briefcase defense, it looks like, probably at, uh, you know, at Power Struggle. We'll be interested to see if they give... I mean, his other G1 loss was, was to Shingo. So we'll be inter- interesting to see if Shingo gets a shot, too. Maybe at the Best of Super Junior World Tag League combined final at the Nippon Budokan December. So we'll see. Uh, there you go. Uh, overall, I would say, um, you know, we already kind of kind of ranked it compared to other finals. I, I don't know if you ever said your final thoughts on where do you think it ranks compared to other finals, also like in the lower tier, I assume? Yeah, I think so. Uh, but, I mean, that's not like a terrible knock in the sense of like the standard for these finals has been really, really high. Yeah. So, you know, it's not, it's not exactly a... Uh, you know, gigantic slight if you're not in the top half of the yeah. G1 finals of the last, you know, eight years. Uh, it didn't make my top ten matches of the tournament, I will say, so I can't remember the last time that happened. But Yeah, um, it did not make mine either. So, uh, I mean, it had the same rating as some of the ones on there, but I just liked other matches better. So uh, so let's wrap this up here by with our G1 Climax wrap-up. Uh, we're going to start by giving a top ten matches. So I have a top ten list. I believe you do as well. And at that point, we'll, I'll then give my ranking for how I um, ranked all these guys based on average star rating and, you know, just wrap up what I thought of the G1. And Todd can, you know, also give his thoughts on each guy, even though he's not a nerd like I am. He doesn't have a star rating spreadsheet. So <laughs> uh, the final top 10 here I have in 10th place, uh, Kazuchika Okada versus Taichi from Night 7, uh, a four and a quarter star match in my opinion. Um, I just I really loved this match. It was like the first Okada match in this tournament that I really enjoyed, and you know I thought Taichi did an amazing job in this match, really making the money clip. Like I thought Taichi was the first guy in this entire tournament who made the money clip look like an actual move instead of like this kind of joke thing. Uh, and I just thought he did a, they did a great job working that around, like you know Taichi just kicking Okada's ass and Okada coming back and winning anyway. So, uh, what is your tenth place match, Todd? I don't have them in in an order, so oh, I've just okay. got I've got a uh, ten. So why, why don't you go through yours, and I'll, I'll name mine in no particular order. Okay. Uh, so ninth place, I have Kenta and Zack Saber Jr. from night six. Uh, so all uh, so I got so I can stop saying four and a quarter. All ten through five, all four and a quarter. 
Uh, Kent is Zack. I really enjoyed it as far as like a, you know, kind of like a very like shooty kind of vibe, I guess. Just very different from anything else in the tournament. Uh, eighth place, Jay White and Taichi from Night 11. Uh, again, these two guys just being like trying to out jerk each other was just a lot of fun. Uh, seventh place, Taichi versus Shingo Takagi from Night 15. I have a lot of Taichi on here, as you can see, but I really, I really loved this tournament. I thought this match was just again the way they built that entire match to you know Shingo trying to avoid that super kick only to get like wiped out by it at the end. Just a great, great build to the match and just an outstanding match. Uh, sixth place, Suzuki versus Ishii from Night One. Just a complete war with those two. Just exactly what you'd expect if you closed your eyes. Uh, fifth place, Kota Ibushi versus Taichi from Night 17. Just that brutal, like, back and forth, uh, you know, leg kick match. Just enjoy the hell out of that one. And fourth place, uh, this the next three matches here are all four and a half. Uh, fourth place, Kajuchika Okada versus Shingo Takagi from Night 13. And an outstanding match. Out, undoubtedly Okada's best match in this tournament. Uh, you know, just a really, really like, you know, the just two, uh, you know, two brand new, two guys who have never faced each other, just like having an outstanding match, really, you know, not much else to say about it, really. Uh, third place, Kota Ibushi versus Jay White from night three. Uh, you know, really just like, I thought this was, they've had some really good matches before, but I like this even more than their G1 final last year. So, you know, I just thought this was a, another outstanding match and uh, we'll see if they can top it when they meet at Power Struggle. Uh, second place, Tetsuya Naito versus Zack Sabre Jr. from Night 4. Um, you know, just like, as far as like working and like a completely different style from most of the other matches of this tournament, uh, just it's a lot of really outstanding mat work and then, you know, still working in some really, really great high spots by the end. Uh, just a really, really fun match and like it definitely uh, would have been my favorite if not for the number one match, which was Tetsuya Naito versus Hiroshi Tanahashi from Night 2. Four and three quarters on my match of the year list. Uh, just really, really, just like turning back the ta- clock, especially for Tanahashi, and just, to me, undoubtedly the best match of this G1. So, what are your ten favorite matches, Todd? So, I have, have five in common with you and five that are different. Um, and as mentioned, I will just have them in chronological order. As uh, I, uh, I, yeah, I, 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 ranking is, is not my... Uh, uh, my my thing. So uh, I, I start off with uh, Minoru Suzuki and Tomohiro Ishii from night one, um, as you had as well. Uh, then uh, Tetsuya Naito and Hiroshi Tanahashi from night two, as well. And then Tetsuya Naito and Zack Sabre Jr. from night four. Um, first one with, that I have that uh, that you did not was Kota Ibushi and Tomohiro Ishii from night five, which was um, a lot of fun. I thought Ishii was moving around a lot with. Um, Ibushi more so than you would uh, you would expect, along with you know your brawling, your uh, um, some some high flying mix, and I thought it was uh, some good stuff on the outside. A really fun match. Uh, night seven, uh, Tomohiro Ishii and uh, Shingo Takagi. Um, I'm actually forgetting. Was that no? Was that on your list? I no, I didn't. I, it, it, okay. it was like just missed it. I think like probably like eleven yeah, was... or twelve. I had a. Oh wait, no, actually, was... no, I didn't like that one that much. Now I think about it. <laughs> okay, uh, so uh, a, a you know tough guy, you know striking with each other, um, uh, fun more brawl type that I think fit you know fit into uh, Ishii's wheelhouse. And I thought Shingo worked well with him. Night thirteen, uh, Jeff Cobb and Tomohiro Ishii. You know, this thing trying to get with me. That that, um, that one I really liked. What I'm what I forgot for Shingo and Ishii was like to me it just weirdly dragged or something. But 
Ishii and Cobb was awesome. Like that was one that would have just missed my list. Yeah, that was a, a you know a, a, it was a quick match. Although it was actually the longest match Cobb had at the tournament, but you know really uh, really exciting Cobb you know power match throwing each other around, and uh, you know they got in and, and, and got out. Uh, then uh, Kota Ibushi and Minoru Suzuki from Night Thirteen. One thing I thought that the announcers, the English announcers, did a good job of pointing out on the uh, the final night in their commentary it was something that I hadn't thought about to that point in the tournament. It made a lot of sense when they brought it up. Was that and and it, Ibushi might have talked about this in his promos. I don't watch a lot of the of the promos. Was the idea that Ibushi was tailoring himself to different people's styles and sort of working similar to the way that they do and trying to beat them on their terms. And, you know, this was one where, you know, Ibushi went in there and he was just, you know, trying to out-tough Minoru Suzuki. And they had a mean guy match, you know, just going at it, each other and, and fighting and scrapping. I thought it was a lot of fun. Uh, night, uh, then next, Okada and Shingo from Night 13, another one that you had. Uh, then Ibushi and Taichi from Night 17, another one you had, and then uh, Ishii and White from Night 17, the uh, the final, which I thought was uh, a uh, dramatic um, sort of come from behind win for Ishii against uh, all of uh, Jay White's tricks. So yeah. those are my ten. Ishii White definitely was also one that would have just been out inside my top ten. That was awesome. But not okay. Shingo and Ishii. That one sucked. No, not Shingo and Ishii. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure I corrected myself because people who listen to all my shows are probably like, what the fuck are you talking about, John? You didn't you get, get it like three and a half stars. So I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so the final order here, uh, as far as like how I ranked guys in the A block, and we'll both, I guess, wrap up their G1. Uh, in 10th place with a 3.17 average star rating, I have Yujiro Takahashi. Um you know, for a guy who was always going to finish last place, I think, I actually thought Yujiro had a good tournament. I thought he had a number of matches where he worked really well as, like, an underdog and, like, actually surprised me. Like, the standouts would have been the uh, the Shingo match, the Ishii match, uh, the Taichi match. Um, those are my highest rated ones of his. And then a lot of other matches that were, like, pretty solid, like, you know, three and a quarter or three stars. The only match of his I actively hated was the Okada match, and they they should just never match those two up again because, like, that was, you know, Yujiro's only bad match of the tournament, and, it, you know, it really dragged Okada's average rating down as well. But, yeah, um, other than that Okada match, I thought he had a really solid tournament and just better than I was expecting, I have to say. Yeah, he might have been better than I was expecting, but my expectations were low. Um, I thought he was uh, I thought he was fine. Um, you know, the, the A block was had a bunch of people who were trying to have really good matches every time out and neutral it felt like often was a little bit of a night off in terms of how hard they were working but like you said i i, I agree that he didn't have you know many matches that weren't at least you know pretty good it wasn't like they were you know they they just stood out in a, in a negative way i thought in general they uh they were holding up their own end and it was sort of a good example of that one was the match with jay white which i thought was um, you know, not meant to be some prolific match, but I thought it was just a fun little match for what it was of, uh, you know, the story of Jay White coming out there in his, you know, tracksuit and, and sneakers and uh, expecting Yujiro was going to lose to him, and uh, he did. So, yeah, I thought Yujiro uh, had a, uh, a, a, good, uh, a good tournament on the, uh, the Yujiro scale. Uh, ninth place, I have Jeff Cobb with an average 3.22. Um, I, I guess, judging by other people on the internet and what they've been saying, I guess I am lower on Cobb's G1 than some other folks. 
Uh, I didn't think he was bad. I mean, he had a bunch of good matches. His average was dragged down for me by uh, a couple matches of his I didn't enjoy at all. Or three matches, actually. I didn't really like Cobb Suzuki. To be honest, I don't remember why. So I can't really tell you. It just stands out here on my spreadsheet. But the other two matches, I can definitely remember why I didn't like them. I didn't like Cobb Okada. I thought, um, you know, it was just another one of these Okada money clip matches that just didn't work for me. And I really hated Cobb and Osprey. So that was the one that, like, really dragged him down. But, you know, the rest of his matches I thought were good to solid. Um, the Ishii match was his only match above four stars for me. and I. But then a couple were close. Uh, Cobb and Taichi and Cobb and White. So, you know, he had really good matches with people that um, were having good matches with everybody. But, uh, you know, the, the maybe the big disappointment of, the, of his tour for me would have been the Shingo match, which I thought those two would work better together than they did, basically. Like... You know, I gave it three and a half stars, but, like, I would have expected it to be a little better. So, but, you know, he wasn't bad or anything. He was fine. I thought that Cobb did a good job for his matches in the tournament. The thing I was most struck by with Cobb was just that they didn't give his, his matches much time. I mean, all of his matches except for one were somewhere between nine and a half minutes and, like, 12 and a half minutes, something like that. I looked it up a, a few days back with the other one going, like, 14 and a half minutes. So, in a you know in a, a block where a lot of people were sort of given a you know twenty minutes or so to work a lot of the time with some of their big matches, it felt like Cobb was sort of limited to go a certain amount of time each time, and I thought that prevented some of his matches, which I thought were very good while they lasted. Felt like they could have gone into an, you know even more of a gear, but then you know someone either got hit with a tour of the islands or avoided tour of the islands and hit their move, and uh, and that was it. So I thought that. Uh, Cobb was was limited not by his performance, but it felt by like the aspirations of what his matches were trying to be. Uh, eighth place, I have Okada with a three point two five average. Um, I, I've litigated a lot of the Okada stuff already on this podcast, so I don't know how much I have to go into again. But the early part of his tournament was just awful, and I understand that he was doing a storyline. I get all that. It just wasn't entertaining to watch. Uh, you know, it killed that Abushi match for me, which should have been good. It really damaged that white match for me when white has had, you know, really good matches with everybody else. And then I thought he had a, he had a little stretch with like the Suzuki and um, Cobb matches back to back that I thought were like, you know, among his worst matches of the tournament. Um, after that, he pulled it out, though. I mean, the Shingo match was awesome. The Ishii match was really good. And that kind of saved his average here from being even worse for me. But yeah, not a not a G1 to remember for me for Kazuchika Okada. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a weird year for Okada. It feels like they still haven't sort of moved beyond this. I I'm still not certain what the idea is with the paperclip, but I'm ready to move the beyond paper the paperclip. Are you doing um, that on it's purpose? Not, it's, not, it's not money, John. It's not money. <laughs> um, well, like so, all, money I mean, is just paper, according to some libertarians. So. <laughs> it's you know, it's I feel like you know he's trying to do something and it's not really working. I'm ready to just go back to the old Okada. I'm not really. I'm not really buying the idea that like Okada is particularly hurt by fans not being there. And like that just sort of speaks to something inherent about his style. I think it's just more straightforward. Just his stuff hasn't been as good during this time period as it had been in the past. Um, and, you know, watching him continually apply the Copa clutches and as entertaining as the reversals for the, for the rainmakers, which is more impactful and, and leads to more exciting counters. So yeah, I, I, I feel like Okada is, uh, in kind of a weak position. And, and I think it sort of hurt some of the other people in the sense that like the, the Osprey turn, I am 
skeptical of on a number of levels. Um, but one of the keys to it is I think if you want to have a lot of heat on the idea that Osprey was chasing this goal of beating Okada this whole time and then needed to cheat to do it, the fact that Okada went into the match in this sort of weird place, I thought it um, took away some of the emotional resonance that might have been there had um, Okada moved into that on sort of a high point. So I think it may it may have the effect of, uh, of hurting a little bit the uh, the 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 turn of, of Osprey because of where Okada is in his career. So yeah, definitely not one of Okada's stronger uh, G1s. Uh, yeah. And I totally agree with you about the, you know, the, how it hurts the Osprey turn, because it's like, it, it does make it feel like, well, you needed B Priestley and the great Okan to beat this guy that like plenty of other people at this level were able to beat pretty easily. It is a little weird, but uh, yeah, I don't know, but uh, you know, we'll see where it goes. I assume we're all going to pay, we're going to pay this off with, Okada hitting the Rainmaker on Osprey at the Dome and winning. But, like, I, I just don't know if that's a... Like, is that payoff really worth what we had to sit through, I guess, is the question. And I would say no. I don't think it was. So, <laughs> I guess we'll see. Uh, seventh place... It felt, like you, it felt like that was a leading question, and you confirmed that. Was <laughs> uh, seventh place, Will Osprey with a 3.31. Um, I am fully willing to admit that I am lower on a lot of his stuff than a lot of people. I mean... He had three matches at four stars flat for me, the Jay White match, the Shingo match, and the Ibushi match. Um, you know, a lot of people really liked all those matches better than I did. A lot of people liked the um, the Ishii match a lot more than I did. So I'm sure I had it much lower than most people. He had a G1 where, like, you know, I can't exactly say I didn't like his G1. I mean, he had plenty, like, putting everything else aside with him, you know, obviously. I can't say I didn't like his G1. Um, he had plenty of matches that I thought were good to great, but like just having to hear from people that he's totally changed his style while I'm watching him, you know, do a thousand flips per match was just a little annoying. It got, it got really annoying after a while. Cause it's like, he, to me, he, he wrestles pretty much the same as he ever did. Now, will he change his style now that he's a heel? Maybe. And now that he's officially a heel. I mean, he did beat show with a leg lock, which I wasn't really expecting, but like, he did not change his style much during this tournament at all, like just as a heavyweight. So I thought that was like one of the most overrated narratives of this entire tournament. But there you go. I thought that I thought that Osprey had a good tournament. I thought his matches were generally good, even if there were some other um, some other people in the tournament that had even better tournaments than he did. I think when we look back, I mean, clearly the key to this whole thing is is how this skill turn affects his career uh, moving forward and. You know, that's still very much an open question. I think my, my, my concern with with that is that Osprey, I think, has cooled off to a lot of Western fans because of the way things were handled with um, the, the speaking out accusations and the way he responded uh, to that. But my sense is that the Japanese fans were still very much into him, and there had been this extended story of him working to beat Okada, and that was going to be a big crowning achievement. And I, my sense, and maybe you feel differently about that, was that Japanese fans were were really into that and really up for wanting to see that. And to instead then have it, you know, be a part of him turning and, and that being the win, I just thought it, it felt like a, you know, it's just sort of a flat moment in a story that the fans were into. And I, I don't know that that's going to create a lot of heat so much as just sort of... Um, you know, just sort of dissipating the the energy in the room that people had around 
Osprey in that role. So we'll see how he, he capitalizes on it moving forward. But I think they sort of lost something that they had in, in I, that choice. Yeah, I totally agree. Now, here's a great question. I promise I'm, I'm, I'm trying to give you a leading question this time. I'm generally generally curious. Do you think heel is a good role for Will Ospreay? I'm not sure. I mean, he feels he's always felt like more of a natural babyface in terms of the way that he works. But I think most wrestlers tend to be more entertaining as heels. Um, the the concerns, uh, the the thing with him is that there is some, you know, there is sort of like a negative air from a lot of fans over what he's done. This I think will, I think, put that to the side. So that's a positive. And then the big question is how he works because he, his style is not a heel style at all, and. If he switches it up, there's, of course, the danger that you take away some of the things that people liked about his other matches. So, you know, it's it's very much an open question. Yeah, I think ring work wise, I don't know if I've ever seen anything from him in New Japan. I, will, I don't watch. I haven't seen really any of his British stuff. So maybe he's worked heel there. and He's worked great. So don't you know, I, I have no idea. But in New Japan, I've never seen anything that would indicate to me he would be a great in ring heel worker. I guess we'll see. But it doesn't really seem like there's anything that it translates to me. His like persona, I guess, could work heelish. You know that that he's so bad at giving interviews that like that interview on the first night. I think the general reaction of people was like that could be heelish. That could just be he's so terrible at delivery that like we're taking it heelish. I don't know, and that's, that was pretty much my thoughts too. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's just a I, I don't like him. I- Oh, sorry, go ahead. On that note, I think I think the last three weeks on the fix, the show I do with with uh, with Wade Keller, emails are emailed in each week asking me whether they think Will Ospreay's turning heel. And each time I've been like, I don't think so, guys. I mean, <laughs> I, I see what you're saying. He is acting kind of weird and annoying, but I mean, I think that's just like I think that's just him sort of doing something and wanting to do it that way. So yeah, I was you know I was very much just sort of ignoring the. Uh, you know, the, the, the signs, even as people were saying, hey, uh, you might want to look at these signs. And I'm like, yeah, I see that. That You know, I noticed that, but I, I don't think that's a bus charging at me. But in fact, it was a bus charging mm-hmm. at well, me. Well, Todd, to be fair to you, Will Ospreay has fucking done this before. I mean, remember <laughs> during the Hiromu buildup last year where he just randomly started acting like a complete asshole? I mean, like, <laughs> he, he has just randomly started acting like an asshole and been the heel in the feud and just it went nowhere. Like after it was over, it's like, oh, okay, I'm a good guy again. So he's definitely done that before. So I don't think, I don't blame anybody who who wasn't convinced it was definitely leading up to a heel turn. Uh, you know, I just think uh, he's just very bad at like the like promo side of wrestling. So you could, you could have taken that as a heel turn. You could have taken that as he was trying to do something wacky and it was coming off heelish. I don't know. Uh, but there you go. I'm very, I, I'm very, I wouldn't say I'm like I'm super pessimistic on how it's going to go. I guess I'm willing to give it a shot. I just don't necessarily expect it to work. So we'll see. And you know, I guess I, I guess like every every like Gaijin has to go heel eventually if they're going to be a top star in this company. But it is very uh... see, and I've heard that too. But to me, like Osprey was the exception. I think sometimes if you've got someone that isn't like fully over having them be a heel sort of allows you to build credibility in them before they turn babyface. But that's part of why I was skeptical they were doing that. Cause I thought that like the fans were with Osprey. They were, in my view, they were ready to fully get behind him. And to me, the big crowning achievement of him 
into a main event player as a babyface was going to be the win over Okada. And so I, I just it was very surprising to me that they would move in this side direction before getting to that. Now they can't do that because the you know Okada beating uh, Osprey beating Okada for the first time, um, being a crowning happy achievement can't be done now. So I I, th- I think he was one where you didn't have to do that. I think that you could have. Um, and what I what I talked about last week was the idea that he would draw with Okada here and he would be still fall short one more time and he would issue the challenge for the Tokyo Dome and the Tokyo Dome finally get the big win over Okada and that would be him, you know, moving into a top, you know, top position. Um, and, you know, clearly that isn't uh, isn't the, the, uh, the direction of the show and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think that probably would have been a, definitely a safer direction, but, you know, they... I'm just not. I'm, I'm not surprised when they do it because I've seen it with so like so many white people at this point that it's like <laughs> okay. Uh, number six, Minoru Suzuki. I have a three point three three. I mean, Suzuki's a guy who I really enjoyed his top end stuff. Uh, you know, Ibushi, Ishii, Taichi, and Jay White. All four stars are above. And then I had a and then another one, Shingo, that was really close to four. Um, but then I had a, bu- a couple matches of his I really didn't like at all. The Cobb match. The Okada match, the Osprey match, uh, they and the Osprey match was like totally Will's fault because Will like just could not sell this arm or whatever the hell. Yeah, it was an arm, I think, and like his arm selling was just so like hideously awful in that match that like it ruined the match for me. But like you know, it drags down Suzuki's average. So what are you gonna do? But yeah, I mean, he, I thought he had a really good tournament for the most part, but you know, there were some matches here that like dragged him down a bit for me. I was higher on Suzuki than, than, than you were. I thought he had a terrific tournament. I really liked uh, Suzuki throughout. I just thought he was, you know, he was just peak Suzuki. I mean, he was the same, you know, angry, you know, violent man uh, every night out. I thought he had lots of really exciting matches. I thought that, to me, he was the second the second place in the MVP for the, uh, for the entire tournament in terms of the quality of his matches. And, uh, yeah, I thought really highly of his performances. Uh, fifth place, big jump here to, from sixth to fifth. I have Kota Ibushi with a 3.83 average, so a half star higher. Um, Ibushi, I mean, again, for a lot of people were saying if Sonata had won this tournament, it would have been like the worst tournament by a tournament winner, and I totally get that. Ibushi won this tournament with, I think, one of his weakest performances ever as far as a whole G1 goes, and the fact that a 3.83 average is his probably his weakest G1 I could think of says more about Kota Ibushi than anything. I mean, he yeah. still had a really good tournament, but I think by his standard, um, you know, the very highest standard he set for himself, I thought this was probably the weakest one of his tournaments I could think of. I mean, you know, he he had uh, only one, only, quote-unquote, four-and-a-half-star match uh, with Jay White for me. And then, you know, just, like, a, a bunch of stuff that was, like, really good, like four-star, four-and-a-quarter. Um, and then, like, the, you know, the Okada match, just being such a downer is like really dragging him down here because uh, I only gave that three stars. But, you know, as far as like, he just didn't have quite as many like super high peaks for me as he has in past years. But again, the, he still had a great tournament. It's just not quite up to his own like very lofty standards. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily focus on the fact that it wasn't his strongest tournament because the standards of his tournaments have been just so high that it's very difficult to compare. But I mean, I think, I think that's fair. I think that this was on the lower end of some of his recent tournaments, but still a very good tournament, a lot of strong matches. And I thought he had one of the, uh, the, the, the best tournaments out of everybody. Uh, and then the top four, I mean, the, the average rating here is separated by 
0.05, so almost nothing. So these guys essentially, you know, came very close to just, like, tying for first. But fourth place, I have Tomihiro Ishii with a 3.92. You know, just another outstanding tournament for Ishii, pretty much what he does every year. Um, You know, maybe I I didn't have him, at again, at 4.5 on anything, so maybe that was the, could have even been the clap crowd effect uh, on me as a reviewer because I probably had less stuff at 4.5 and and higher than... uh, I did in any tournament, but he had the, I think the most number of four and a quarter star matches. Yeah. He had five of them for me. So a ton of matches that I really, really liked. Um, and just not anything below three and just a really consistent, outstanding wrestler. Like you, you run out of ways to say the same thing for him every year. So, I mean, what are you, what are you going to do? But yeah, I thought issue was phenomenal. He was my MVP. I, uh, I, I, I thoroughly repudiate your fourth place. <laughs> shame, shame on you. Um, with your your number uh, your number play, um, I, I thought Ishii was just uh, just incredible. I thought that he uh, he had so many great matches in this tournament, and uh, yeah, I mean, I thought this was a real a real highlight for him. Uh, tied for second, both with the same three point nine four average. I, I I guess I could move the decimal point at least one over and see if I could break the tie, but I'm not going to do that. Let's just leave him tied. Uh, Shingo Takagi and Jay White um, both had outstanding tournaments in my mind. Um, you know, they both peaked almost exactly the same. They both had a four and a half star match. Uh, they both had a bunch of, uh, four star and four and a quarter star matches. Neither one of them had anything I would call bad. Uh, you know, Shingo, pretty much exactly what you'd expect out of him. Jay White, I mean, this was Jay White's like breakout G1 for me. I mean, he's always been a guy I enjoyed a lot, uh, but a guy who could like really be hit or miss for me, especially in the context of a G1. Um, you know, last year's G1, I didn't think was that good for him. Um, but like here he was just like having great matches night in and night out and like just peaking high with that Ibushi match, you know, having other matches I really, really like the Ishii match, uh, the Shingo match, the Taichi match, uh, all four and a quarter, uh, the Osprey match, Suzuki, four stars flat, just tons of great stuff here. Um, just a really outstanding, um, you know, pro wrestler. Like to me, the thing that he really put together in this G1 that he maybe has been lacking in the past was like a move set that I really liked. Like his, he's really added a lot of cool, you know, cool new moves to the move set. The other stuff he's always already been really good at. I mean, he's always been a good seller. He's always been good at the match structures and, you know, building a match and all that kind of stuff. And the character work has always been outstanding, but I I think he got better at like, you know, being a little less boring and control and having like cooler moves to do and stuff like that. So really put it all together for me this year. Yeah, uh, as far as Shingo goes, I thought he was uh, he was great throughout. I mean, he's such a great wrestler. I was a little bit disappointed that, although it's understandable because there was a lot of depth in this tournament, that he wasn't more of a, a focal point in terms of getting some big wins and being presented to somebody on the rise. But there's still time for that. I'm ready. I'm ready for Shingo to uh, to be moved up to a more prominent position on the uh, on the card. But I thought he he, he stood out with his uh, the quality of his work in this tournament. Uh, as far as Jay White goes, I thought Jay was Jay was great throughout. I think he's, you know, he was able to mix in the uh, the heel work with really good wrestling, and um, you know, just great character work as a heel. And since we're talking about Jay White, let's go back to something you mentioned earlier in the show because I was going to raise this myself. Um, on the one hand, it feels kind of crazy to raise the question to me of Jay White going babyface because. 
he's only been, you know, in the role that he is now for, you know, a couple of years now. And he's so effective as a heel. I mean, I, I think he's probably the best overall heel in the, in the business when you put all the different facets of it together. Um, and it isn't like there's sort of a clamoring for him in a different role. But, you know, I look at the combination of that they are setting up a feud with, with evil, which makes sense. And you don't really need him in the bullet club with Kenton evil already in that position. And they are doing a bunch of these interference finishes and a bunch of different wrestlers. So there's a repetitiveness there. Um, and then the fact that Jay is just so fluid and smooth in the ring that I think it would just be awesome to see him without the stalling and the interference and just trying to have the best possible matches without trying to not make you like him too much. And then a final factor, which is that, you know, New Japan has, you know, in recent years risen in their popularity in foreign markets. And right now with the Osprey turn, their their top three foreigners are all heels now. And I think there's something to be said for having a popular foreign babyface for the foreign markets. And I think Jay White could become a, you know, cool babyface in a, a short amount of time that I'm, you know, I look at it and I'm like, this doesn't seem like bad, that bad of an idea to me. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that's where we're going. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited to see how it goes. I mean, look, worst case scenario, if it doesn't work as well as you were expecting, you can always turn him heel again. I mean, you know, it's not like he can never be a heel again. But you know, I mean, he's he is an outstanding heel, so I could totally see being worried about, you know, messing with that. But you know, like you said, he's so smooth in the ring now. Maybe he just kills it as a baby face. So. Uh, my number one wrestler in the A block, and hopefully Joe Lance is listening to hear this. The A block MVP, Taichi, with a three point nine seven average rating. And Taichi, he didn't even peak as high for me as Jay or Shingo. Uh, you know, he, he doesn't have a four and a half star match, but he's he had such a high floor for me. Like every match of his, I mean, the, the lowest rated matches of his I had in the tournament were the Osprey match and the Yujiro match, which I both won three and a half on, and then you know he had a just a ton of four-star matches. Uh, you know, Ishii, Suzuki, uh, you know, I went four flat on, and a bunch of four and a quarter. Uh, Ibushi, Okada, uh, Shingo, Jay White. I mean, he got the best uh, match out of Okada by far during that early portion where Okada just didn't want to do anything but sell and then go for the money clip, uh, which I thought was, like, compared to what everybody else got out of that Okada, I thought was a pretty pretty amazing accomplishment. So yeah, I think he was just he was like the glue guy of this tour, this block. I mean, every time he went out there, I thought he had a really good match, uh, even if he didn't quite peak as high as Shingo or Jay White did. So not surprised where he ended up in this average, and I think it's well deserved. So I, yeah, I can't I can't be on board with that the number one guy in this block, but I did think he had a good tournament. I thought that he um, had a bunch of of really good matches. I thought that he he seemed more motivated. Um, he had different types of matches, which was good. I thought this was his uh, his strongest. I mean, it might this might have been the strongest run of his uh, of his New Japan career. Um, so I think he's 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 done well for himself. Um, but I, I don't know about you know I don't know about number one in this block. <laughs> All right, who'd you put above him? I assume Shingo and White for sure. Probably Ishii for sure. Probably Ibushi and Suzuki based on what you said. Would that be yep. it? Um, who else is left? Uh, so we've got Osprey, Okada, uh, Cobb, and Ujiro. Okay. Obviously, he's above Ujiro. Um, Okada had such a weird tournament. I mean, he was one that had really good matches and um, some really bad ones. I don't think that. 
I don't think that Taichi had anything that was as good as Okada and Shingo. I would, I, but, I would agree, actually. Um, but I think, yeah, I think I think I agree with you. I think there was more consistency to Taichi's tournament than Okada. Um, so I can see arguments both ways there. Uh, with Cobb, I mean, they didn't give Cobb that much time, but I thought what he did was so consistently strong. Uh, and then who was the other one? Osprey. Osprey. I thought Osprey had a pretty darn good tournament. Um, you know, even if he wasn't as good as some of those other ones. Yeah, I, I don't feel I don't feel super strong about uh, about any of those. Okay, well there you go. Taichi's my number one, and he's probably Todd's number eight or nine, apparently. But <laughs> there you go. Uh, block number the B block here uh, with the much maligned B block. Uh, there's less people at the top here at B block for sure. I mean, there's. My, my number one overall wrestler is in B-Block, and no one's going to be surprised who it is. But then after that, it drops off because my number two in B-Block would be tied for fifth in the A-Block. My number three, well, three and four would be higher. But yeah, like after that, so the, there's just more high-end stuff in the A-Block for sure. But I enjoyed the B-Block, especially the uh, early and late portions of it. And even if it did become a little bit of a slog in the middle, and I still had a lot of fun with some of these matches. So let's go through the averages here. 10th place, Toriano with an average of th- exactly three stars. I don't really put a lot of thought into star rating Toriano matches. I will say the one thing for him that really stood out for me in the high end was Zack Sabre Jr., which I thought that match was like just, that was, I thought, a just a great pro wrestling match, even beyond a Yano match. So, you know, I gave that four stars. Um, the rest of his matches, you know, there was stuff I found funny, stuff I didn't find funny. Uh, so, you know, it just kind of varied. I mean, probably his weakest matches were with Evil and Sonata, which may be, might be dragging both their averages down, but what are you going to do? And the Goto match, I think, was like five seconds. So, you know, uh, not much else to say about Yano. I enjoyed his tournament. Yeah, it was, a, it was what you would expect from Toriyama. Uh Ninth place, Evil with a 3.39 average. Evil, I mean, he had three matches that I gave exactly four stars, uh, which was shockingly, shockingly awesome Yoshihashi match. Uh, the Naito match that I really liked, I thought was their best match together, and the Sonata match. Um, he had one three and three quarter star match with Zach that I really liked as well. After that, he had a bunch of stuff that really only landed to me on certain, you know, on a certain level. I mean, the Tanahashi match was the first time that I actually got like really actively pissed off at the Dick Togo interference, and you know, maybe it was just like too much of it or something at that point for me in the tournament. But yeah. Uh, the Goto match, I didn't really like that much either, or the Kenta match. So, you know, he was, I guess you could say he was hit or miss. I didn't think he was as bad as some people were saying, but I'm not surprised he finished ninth place for me. I guess that's the best way I could put it. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about um, Evil in, in that light, because I wasn't thinking like, oh man, he had one of the weakest tournaments ever, 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 ever of anyone. But then you, you know, I start thinking about it as you mentioned, I'm like, yeah, he didn't really have that much of like, Super highlights in terms of uh, in terms of his matches. So yeah, that feels that feels fair. Not a not a not a great run for Evil here as he's you know turned heel and uh, been trying to elevate it on the card. Been tried they tried to elevate him on the card. It's uh, you know it's been uh, it's been a learning period, some acclimation, and you know hopefully with uh, with time he'll uh, he'll figure things out in terms of putting uh, the different pieces together and being a uh, heel, but also being able to have entertaining matches. And I mean, I think some people are really down on evil. I think evil's talented. So, I mean, I, I you know, I, I don't, 
I don't necessarily, uh, you know, uh, assume that he won't uh, he, he he won't put it together in the in the coming years. Yeah, I agree. I think I've, I've always found him to be a really talented wrestler. So I don't know where people people seem to have decided they always hated him <laughs> this year, which I think is a little. I don't know if that was really out there before this year, but sure. Uh, but yeah, I, I just think once they. Maybe they'll calm down a little bit on the Dick Togo stuff because the way they like to book in New Japan, they, they really like to like ram stuff down your throat when they first do a turn, especially. So maybe they'll calm down on it a little bit as we go forward. But yeah, I mean, the Dick Togo stuff did get a little annoying by the end of this tournament for me, too. Uh, tied for seventh here, both with a 3.44, uh, Sonata and Juice Robinson. Uh, Juice, I can say very quickly, just had a very, uh, you know, a lot of three star to three and a half star matches for me. Uh, the only match of his that really stood out was the Naito match at four and a quarter and the Goto match at three and three quarters. Um, you know, the Naito match was really awesome, but I thought Naito had a lot of awesome matches in this tournament. So, you know, they just, they have great, great chemistry together. Um, but other than that, I just think he kind of struggled, especially with the, um, you know, the lack of crowd connection, which I'm not surprised that happened for him, honestly. Do you have any thoughts on Juice before I talk about Sonata? No, not 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 particularly. I think Juice uh, had a uh, a fine tournament. Not he didn't stand out as one of the best, but his his matches, you know, were, were generally pretty good. Uh, Sonata three point four four. I mean Sonata. I mean the thing that stands out to me about Sonata is he didn't just have he had like one of the lowest profiles of a finalist in this tournament's history. And what I mean by that, like, is he was booked in a lot of match one and match two and match threes and almost no main events or, or semi or even semi main events until the very end. So I, that's the one part of this where I'm like, I'm not sure how much of the perception of him was driven by his performances and how much was driven by the booking. Uh, he definitely didn't do anything to like stand out early in, tor- in the tournament. That is for sure. I, I really like the Goto match. Uh, like at the very first night of the B block, I think, which I gave three and three quarters, but like other than that, his early stuff, you know, it was very early in the card. And a lot of it didn't stand out. Um, the Zach match especially was very disappointing because the two of them had really good matches before. But I thought he... And the Naito match too was, you know, again, I went three and three quarters. A little disappointing. thought they had better ma- a better match two years ago in the G1. Um, but then after that, I mean, I thought he closed really strong. I mean, the Tanahashi match was awesome. I mean, his best match of the tournament. And the Evil match I liked a lot, even though a lot of people didn't. So he closed strong. He had a good final. Um, I think he comes out as a bigger star than he entered. Uh, and, you know, I think the Japanese fans do like him a lot. But, like, I totally get why he, you know, he's not, he wasn't beloved by the Western uh, internet fans, I guess I'll say, entering this tournament. And I don't think he did a ton to change his lot with them, I guess. So. Yeah, they made an effort here with, with Sonata. And, I'm 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 going to be interested to see where it goes from here because, on the one hand, I think you know you can think of it as this being a, an early point in Sonata moving into a guy that's going to be more of a key player, and I could also see it being a deal where he's more sort of like a Hiroki Goto, where he, you know, yeah, he he uh, flirts with the idea of being more of a top player and then sort of settles into um, a lower role on the card and. I'm. I would tend to think that it's more likely that he's going to settle on a lower role on the card. When you look at um, both the, the his career in general as well as his tournament, he's a, a solid wrestler. But he, I don't think that there's um, on a on a on a card that has so many 
people that stand out not only in terms of really great wrestlers but in terms of big personalities uh he, he doesn't jump out off the page with you as much and i, I don't i'm skeptical about his ability to be a uh a main event players in, in, in big matches. I mean, I will say he is, yeah, I, I feel like this always has to be stated, he's way more popular in Japan than people give him credit for. Uh, if you look at those popularity polls they do, the Japanese general election poll they do online on, uh, you know, this past year he finished fourth place uh, ahead of Okada. So, I mean, he's a very popular guy in Japan. Um, so I, maybe he will, I mean, I, Maybe he will. He won't get to. What like is the, the poll you're referencing, by the way? I'm sorry. What's the poll you're referencing? So it's like by the it's way? like basically a poll of like Japanese hardcore fans on like a message board they use. So I think it has like okay. a, like about two thousand respondents or something. Um, but he also usually does pretty well in the the weekly pro wrestling poll, which is uh, I think more respondents, and that that one's based on the the weekly pro wrestling magazine poll they do, the popularity poll. But yeah, he consistently does really well in those popularity polls. Um, you know, he, I think he he's in the most popular unit, so that obviously helps him a lot. But like, yeah, I don't know. I think I think the popularity is there, and I get why they're continuing to push him. Even if you know, I think if you're a Western fan who doesn't like Sonata, I think you should be prepared for him to be near the top of the card for the next five years. He's only thirty two years old, too. I mean, he's younger than I think people think he is. So you know, compared to like you know Naito, who's like thirty eight, uh, Ibushi's thirty eight. You know, Tanahashi's obviously like I think forty one or forty two, so you know he's a young guy. I mean, there's there's time to get him there. I don't I don't think he'll ever be like the top star in the company, but I could see him win the title at some point. I definitely could see it. So you know, I guess we'll see what happens. But you you're right. He could end up being. I mean, I think you could very well be right that he could end up being the the Godo of this generation where he gets a million title shots and he always like because Godo. I I think people forget how high up Goto was at one time. I mean, he got a million IWGP heavyweight title shots. He made he won tournaments. He won, went to a lot of finals. Uh, I mean, that could be Sonata's role, uh, to be the guy who gets close and never never quite gets there. But that's still a top role, you know? I mean, that's still a guy who, um, you know, is going to be... I think he'll be around the top of the card for a long time to come, whether he actually ever wins the big one, quote-unquote, or not, so... But I guess we'll see. Uh, sixth place, I have Hiroki Goto. Speaking of Goto, <laughs> at a three point five six average, I thought he had a good tournament. I mean, not a t- he didn't peak high. I mean, three four star matches was his highest for me uh, with Tanahashi, Yoshihashi, and Naito. Uh, didn't really have a low floor either. Just uh, you know, a good, enjoyable tournament from Hiroki Goto. Exactly what you would expect out of him. Yeah, I agree. Uh, fifth place, Kenta at three point six one. Uh, he was a guy who was like much more hit or miss for me. Like the, the matches he like he had that I really liked uh, the Tanahashi match, the Naito match, the Zack Saber Jr. match, uh, and then a little bit of lower level the Goto match and the Yoshiashi match. I really liked those matches. On the other hand, the Juice match I thought was pretty poor. Uh, you know the Sonata match really didn't do much for me. The Evil match was a big disappointment when you know it was this big Bullet Club showdown, and I just didn't live up to that at all. So, you know, he was very hit or miss for me, but the stuff that hit was, you know, hit high enough to get him here into fifth place, so. Yeah, I thought Goto, uh, Goto, uh, I thought that uh, Kenna was effective in, in what he was trying to do. I mean, Kenna isn't, Kenna isn't trying to be, like, super worker, having the amazing match every time. I mean, this is, he's not 2008 uh, Kenta anymore. He's a guy that's, you know, that's slowed down, and he's 
relied a lot on the character work, and I think he was very effective in his current role. And I thought he was effective throughout this tournament. It didn't mean a bunch of uh, you know outstanding matches throughout, but I thought that it was effective character work, and I thought the matches were entertaining enough. I thought he I thought he he did a good job. Fourth place, the man who made <laughs> the people eat crow, Yoshihashi, with an average Yoshihashi. of three point six four. He was awesome in this tournament. <laughs> no, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yoshi had a good tournament. I'm uh, proud of him. Uh, place. He, he, you know, the Tanahashi match, the Goto match, the Evil match, the Naito match, all at four stars for me. And then right behind that, the Zach in the Kenta match. He would be even higher if, he, if I didn't dislike the match he had with Sonata so much. But yeah, I mean, he just had a great tournament. I mean, like, this is a guy who people said, people groaned when he was announced for this tournament. People complained a lot about him. But he went out there every night, showed amazing fire, really showed people why they ever liked him in the first place. And, you know, he's he's a guy that I get why people <laughs> don't like him. And he's definitely come up small before in some big spots. But, man, was he fired up to be back in this G1. You could just tell uh, pretty much the moment he stepped in there that he was super fired up to be in the G1 after, taking, after being left out last year. And he made the most of it. I mean, he showed great babyface fire. Great underdog stuff, just really, really fun from Yoshihashi. Yeah, I I may have cast aspersions against Yoshihashi in the past. That may have happened. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I thought he came through in this tournament. Um, I thought he I mean he might have had the best, you know, the best run of his career, really. I mean I thought I, I not, it was not only the quality of the matches were good, but I just enjoyed the fire. You know, he was he was in there with, you know, a bunch of these uh these nasty heels and he was, you know, he was ordered and he fought back and he, uh, he showed fire throughout. I thought it was a, uh, I thought it was a real strong tournament for Yoshihashi. So yeah, I mean, I think, uh, they gave him that moment the other, the, uh, the other month where they all celebrated him in the six man title in Kurikan. And, uh, yeah, it's a nice little, it's a nice little run for Yoshihashi. He may not have had the, uh, <laughs> the greatest career of all, but, um, I think he, he, he deserves, uh, mentioning in this tournament because, uh, he stood out in, in, in a positive sense, for sure. Uh, the third place, Zack Sabre Jr. at a 3.72. So Zack, early on, was like neck and neck with Naito for my B-block slash overall MVP. And he did peter off a little bit from that level. Um, you know, the, the early stuff for him was like some of my favorite stuff. The Evil match was like shockingly good, like a three and three-quarter star match. The Naito match was my second favorite match of the entire tournament. The Kenta match was awesome, also made my top ten. Um, but after that, like, you know, the, the Sonata match was like really disappointing for what the two of them did, um, you know, in prior matches and like last year's G1, they, I was, they had this awesome match at Dallas that I was at live and this did not come close to that. I thought, or the, uh, the Tokyo Dome match they had either. Um, the juice match was not very good or not that great. Uh, the Goto match was like two seconds cause I don't know if maybe Goto was like legitimately injured. So there's some stuff here that dragged him down a little bit, but he definitely had, and a really great tournament overall, and I really liked a lot of his matches. So, yeah, I don't know that I'd say that like Saber had like a particularly strong tournament for Saber standards. Um, I thought it was sort of what you'd expect from Zack Saber Jr. He's just really good. I mean, so if you have Saber in there with uh, with a bunch of different wrestlers and uh, in New Japan, where the quality is pretty high, he's going to have a lot of fun matches with his uh, with his style, particularly in I think in the G one because. He offers a you know he offers a, a change of pace because the style is different than a lot of the other guys. So I don't think this was by any means one of like the better runs of his career. But Zack Saber's a really good wrestler, and so he had a uh, 
a, a tournament befitting a really good wrestler. Uh, in second place, Hiroshi Tanahashi with a 3.83. Um, just, I mean, you know, he's Hiroshi Tanahashi. He, he has really good matches. It's not breaking news, really. Uh, you know, the Naito match at four and three quarters helps out his average a lot, but then you also have the Kenta match I really liked, uh, the Goto match, the Yoshihashi match, um, you know, just a bunch of really good stuff here. The only thing dragging him down a little bit is that the match with Evil, you know, one of his big main events I really didn't think was that great, but, uh, you know, he closed his tournament strong with Sonata and, uh, and, uh, Zack Sabre Jr. on the last night, so... Definitely had another, yet another really good tournament for Hiroshi Tanahashi. Not a, not a big surprise. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Hiroshi Tanahashi is a very good wrestler. He <laughs> wasn't, he wasn't asked to, you know, relied upon to be like one of the people really carrying this tournament. But you know, when he went out there and and uh, and, and had his matches, they were consistently very good with uh, you know a variety of points. And my number one wrestler here, Tetsuya Naito, with a four point oh eight. I don't think anyone's surprised that Naito was my number one in B or in overall. But, uh, you know, I just thought he went out there and just, he worked so hard in this tournament with these, you know, going almost between 20 and 27 minutes every night. Um, you know, there were times when maybe he looked a little, like, sloppy, which hurt the Sonata match, the the Destino counter, I get that. But, you know, he just had such a high floor for me. I mean, the worst match of his I had was the Yano match, which I gave three and a half stars. And then, you know, he had a ton of four-star matches. Uh, Kenta, Evil, uh, Goto, I really liked all those matches. Juice, I thought, was awesome. You know, and then he had the four-and-a-half-star match with Zack, the match with the tournament with Tanahashi, just really just knocked out of the park, in my opinion. And, you know, uh, it, it's unfortunate as a Naito fan that, like, his, his tournament, quote-unquote, as the champion had to be during this COVID era because... You know, it's without the crowds going wild for him. It's, it, it is something, I guess, you all miss. But I mean, he still had an outstanding tournament. So you know, I thought he was just a, just a really good wrestler here. Uh, really, really given the ball, especially in the early portion of this, in the early portion of the B block shows, especially. And I thought he like really carried this block, uh, you know, through the early portion, especially. So. Yeah, so it sounds like you're a little bit higher on Naito's tournament than I was. Um, I thought that the uh, the fact that he went wrong so often at times worked to his advantage, at times worked to his disadvantage. I thought that there were matches that were that were really good, um, and the fact that they had the time to, to let it breathe adds to the matches. I thought there were other matches where the fact that they went so long made the matches drag um, early on and, uh, and, and at times took crowds out of it a little bit relative to um, what I think they could have done if they tightened it up. So... I thought, it was a, I thought it was a mixed bag, um, but as the uh, you know as the IWGP champion, he's an Okanagan champion for that matter. He's going to be um, you know relied upon to uh, to be in in key matches every night. And as you mentioned, he worked he worked very hard to uh, to give the best performances he could um, you know in that role. So there you go. That's the wrap of the tournament. Um, I guess like final final thoughts on the tournament. It's, I'm not going to remember this as, like, one of the all-time best G1s, for sure. I mean, like, uh, to me, like, if you're going to put, like, tiers of G1s, as far as G1s I've seen all the way through, which will go back to 2013, like, this would be, like, a mid-tier G1 to me. It's not the worst G1 I've ever seen. I, I think 2018 is still my least favorite G1. But, you know, it's definitely below, like, the top-tier ones, which, which to me are, like, 2013, 2015, and 2017. Uh, it's 
somewhere in there with like 2014, 2016, and 2019. I, I think for sure I like 2019 better. The other two I'd have to think about, so it's somewhere in that ranking. But, you know, not not a terrible G1. And for for the circumstances, I think they really, uh, you know, they, it could have been a lot worse, I think, is the best thing I can say. And, you know, I enjoyed I enjoyed pretty much all the shows, only a couple of shows that I didn't enjoy. So I would say this was a, you know, a very, a good G1, uh, maybe very good G1, and definitely better than the worst G1 I've ever seen. That, that sounds right to me. I mean, I think the way that you're going to categorize it is just, I think, depending on um, sort of what you're framing it as, like in the sense of like, if you're just comparing it to other G1s, you might say it's just a good G1. If you're just comparing it to wrestling in general, I think, you know, the standard of the last few years has been, you know, very good consistently. So I I don't think this has been like you. I don't think this was one of the top ones, but they had some handicaps with those smaller crowds and the inability to cheer. And if you put those factors in there, you might expect it to, um, to struggle compared to some of the recent G1s. And while it might not have been the best of the bunch, I thought that they did a really good job given the limitations. It was yeah. a, a very fun tournament. Yeah, I thought it... I, I mean, I honestly, going into this, I thought it was going to be worse. I mean, that's the best... <laughs> that's a compliment I can give it. I thought it was going to be more of a struggle to get through 19 shows without crowd cheering. Part of that is because... The crowd just gave up at some points on not cheering, and they just started cheering, you know, a little bit, which they probably shouldn't be doing. But, uh, you know, that definitely helped. So, uh, you know, it definitely was not a drag to get through it all. So that's that's a, a high Not level. at all, no. Yeah. All right, Todd, uh, why don't you go ahead and give us the big plug here? Well, I don't know if I can do a big plug, but I'll do a little plug. Um, sure. Uh, Tom or, Todd Martin MMA is uh, the Twitter handle. So if you want to follow me, you can follow me there. Um, I, I do a, a weekly wrestling podcast called the uh, the Fix with uh, with Wade Keller at pwtorch.com. That's a uh, a, a VIP uh, subscription uh, site, so you have to uh, subscribe. But you can check out free shows, which we do once every three weeks or so, on Wade's podcast feed. So you can check out a sample there if you like and, and see what we do. We talk about you know all sorts of stuff. We talk about WWE, AEW, New Japan, NXT, ROH, Impact. Um, uh, UFC, uh, Bellator, all sorts of different stuff. Um, so it's a lot of fun, and uh, I'd encourage people to check it out. Now, Todd, be, be honest. How excited were you that you got to do a two-hour podcast where you didn't have to talk about WWE at all? <laughs> I mean, I, uh, look, I mean, the, the WWE <laughs> product is so much fun to talk about. I don't know how anyone could get um, disappointed about covering WWE. Um, yeah, I mean, hopefully at some point they'll improve. But, I mean, there's sort of pros and cons from an analytical standpoint of both because there's always a lot to sort of critique and go over what WWE's doing. But, yeah, I mean, your take-home points with WWE are usually like, they shouldn't have done it this way, they should have done it this way. Whereas New Japan, it's, you know, more like this was really good wrestling and it's interesting they're doing this. Um, I wonder if they're doing it for this reason, this reason, or this reason, as opposed to, like, they don't know what they're doing. So, yeah. <laughs> Um, it's uh, it's certainly a much 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 better product. Uh, yeah, I don't know because I, I, I was just thinking about like because uh, we do like a year in review series here on Wrestling Omakase every year we review a promotion's entire year and I was honestly thinking like should I do WWE this year? I mean I haven't watched like I've watched maybe like I don't know like three hours total probably and I don't even know who I would go to at this point especially in the uh, the Voice of Wrestling sphere to. Tr- who who's actually watching it so uh because like you should see these the voice wrestling slack every time they have to try to assign a wwe pay-per-view review or preview now 
It's like trying. That's actually one positive though, is that while the product has been quite bad this year, the pay-per-views over the last like five months or so, they decided like at some point, what, since we don't have live crowds, we're going to keep these things to around three hours or so. And they've done a little bit less than they usually do of the, of the BS finishes. And so their pay-per-views actually have been some of their better stuff over the last five months or so. So mm. that's a relative positive compared to some of the other stuff. There you go. They, they, the news hasn't traveled to the Voice of Wrestling Slack <laughs> because nobody wants to preview or review them ever. I mean, seriously, like they, be- they have to beg people to please write about this pay-per-view. So but there you go. Uh, so, of course, folks, you can follow us on Twitter at WrestleOmakase, Wrestling One Fit. Uh, next week, we're taking a week off here on the free feed, uh, mostly just a reward for myself after doing daily audio on this, these three tournaments for a month and a half. So I'm taking a week off on the free feed. Uh, so we'll be back in two weeks. But if you want to hear me, uh, patreon.com slash WrestlingOmakase. We'll keep the audio coming there for only $5. Uh, so we'll have a new five matches episode with myself and uh, Iron Mike Spears from the uh, Open the Voice Gate and Everything Elite podcast in the Voice of Wrestling Network. So that'll be on the Patreon feed next week. But we are taking a week off on the free feed. So I'll see you back here on the free feed in two weeks. Until then, folks, thank you as always for listening, and I'll see you next time.